2: When
3: I was in Christian, when I was dedicated to the cause of Lucifer, I was, at that end, a 7th generation was I-, I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes
2: were all back in my head. There was I evidence mean, of uh, human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions One I asked was, guys, is there any- yeah. Yeah. Found a man with a favorite sight. Richard, the Richard And started come down the stairs. The stairs, disgusting smell. And at that point, just basically said, "Do you know what they did to us?" That's
4: when
5: I fled that home. But no, they would touch me. They would, they would take pictures in my head, if they wanted to communicate with me. We've got them on X-ray, we've got them on CAT We've got them on the Gauss meter, which measures magnetic field, 7.5. And we've got them on an the
1: ultrasound machine. It's right, there. right there. It's hard, physical evidence. It's not illusionary. That's right. Guys, we are back on Normal. It's been a while since we've actually been here in the studio, even though you heard a show last week uh, from Mark Anthony Wyatt talking about all his weird experiences with ghosts and sleep paralysis and all kinds of interesting stuff. And I uh, just wanted to wish you guys a very happy Beltane since it is May the 1st. I know Luke you're a, you're a satanic pagan Buddhist. So yeah, I know right, that you uh,
3: let me tell you I'm totally going to celebrate after this is over. <laughs> are you
1: going to get you going to dance around the fire? You got like a maypole set up in your in your backyard I would, next if, to the if, duck pond?
3: If I could find the right friends to do that kind of thing with, I totally would. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Rob? How are you celebrating Beltane? Um, Mostly with sleep and whiskey.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that sounds
3: good. It's it's sipping Sabbath for me.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm celebrating it just by being here with you guys. So, you know. We love you, dog. I know it, man. I know it. It's great to be here. Uh, We're going to be doing something kind of different tonight. Uh, We have... uh, scheduled to talk as guests uh, Scotty Roberts and John Ward who is now actually in the United States uh, but we're going to actually I'm actually going to be talking to them tomorrow but uh, for the person listening to it you're just hearing everything it's also the magic of time travel right <clears throat> and uh, our editing so we're going to do about an hour here in the uh, Bighorn studio and I want to just kind of like unpack some things. I think we have not had, we usually talk about for maybe like 30 minutes on the show. And then we come back and we talk about maybe 10, 15 minutes at the end of the show. And we've not had, I think for a very good long time where it's just kind of like just us in the studio. It's nice. And it's, that, it's nice yeah. to be able to speak for a change. Yeah. And, uh, cause, cause usually when, uh, usually when guests are on, Luke is usually asleep. <laughs> and Rob is like actually is monitoring things you
3: know a lot of people are like me though dude like if you don't actually get to give any feedback like you kind of start drifting away you know what I mean
1: yeah yeah I, I hear you and, but I mean I will ask you sometimes like what do you think and you're like oh but there was that one time like what do you think you like Rob
3: uh. no no because Rob, Rob. Rob just looked like he had a lot to say about it so I was just like go ahead dude go back to bed man <laughs> He was chomping at the bit over there. So I was just like, go for it. But
1: uh, (laughs) yeah. So I wanted to kind of go through something that we talked about a couple of shows ago. That was one with Joshua Cutchin. And I brought up the entire bathroom debate, the great bathroom controversy of 2016 You know, this is the great debate of our times, apparently, because everybody has an opinion about it. Well... I guess I have my own opinion about it, but I kind of want to dissect this a little bit, kind of see what's going on out there about this. And this is not the only thing we're going to talk about it about tonight, because, Luke, I know you told me before we started that you're kind of sick of hearing about it, because you've probably been a little more exposed
3: to it than I have recently. Right. As soon as I came in, I said, no bathroom crap, dude. Let's not discuss that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I got lots of clips, man. So like, sorry, but I kind of want to break it down in in some ways and maybe people haven't actually thought about and kind of getting away a little bit from just like the little issue of uh, the state versus the transgendered people. Are the who's being persecuted by who? Are the Christians being persecuted or are the transgender people being persecuted? I want to kind of get away from that a little bit. And I hadn't really intended to talk about this. I kind of wanted to just kind of talk about it on episode 113 and just kind of let it go. But there, it has not died off in the last two weeks since we talked about it. And it's only gotten, I think, for the most part, worse. Yeah, I, I can't even get on Facebook anymore.
6: Yeah. Because it's the schism has gotten so... Mm-hmm. Ridiculous, and everyone is so radical on either side that I just right.
1: And if you have a Facebook like mine, where you have a lot of people that come from a kind of, well, let's say a Christian evangelical uh, conservative viewpoint, and then you have some people on my Facebook that come from it from maybe a feminist viewpoint, or maybe some people that <laughs> come from it from a from the homosexual rights standpoint. It's like it's the biggest like checkerboard on my Facebook that you could ever possibly possibly <laughs> see right now more than I think any other issue, and like I said before, this kind of hit people hard like people a lot of people just were not ready for this kind of thing to happen, and like it's it, it and a lot of people are backlashing against it because it's too much was there anything you wanted else to add about that Rob? no, just that I wanted to go back to like cute puppy videos and stuff mm-hmm.
6: That's what I get to Facebook sure it will.
1: I'm sure it'll go back to cats and all kinds of things. Or we'll get to the other to the, to the next bit of manufactured outrage, right? Um, but what made it worse in the last two weeks was Target. Target made it worse, and why Target felt like they had to do something, <laughs> why this one store felt like it was their mission to be inclusive to transgender people, to stand up against the forces in North Carolina and all across the South and other areas that want to enact these bathroom laws that you, well, basically the law is you have to go use the bathroom that is stated your sex on your birth certificate. So if you're physically a male You have to go to the men's room. If you're physically a female, you have to go to the women's room. That's basically the law. Well, so I don't know if target was getting beaten by Walmart and sales and they decided that they wanted publicity, whatever it was, target decided that they were going to take a stand and they were going to let people that identified whatever sex you identify as you can use that bathroom. So if you identify as a woman, but you're anatomically a male, you can go to the women's room. And that seems to be the crux of the whole issue on the other side, right? A man going to use the women's bathroom. All right. So Rob, let's go ahead and pull up. This is kind of like a basic primer of what's going on with Target. This is, uh, give me one second, because this is got a lot target facing backlash or transgender bathroom policy
3: when's the last time you've even bought anything from target (laughs) yeah i mean really truly
1: i mean it's it's kind of like so i want to unpack this whole target issue specifically as it deals with target this is from i believe a uh news channel in buffalo new york
7: well, Target is facing some backlash now for its new bathroom policy.
2: The company announced that transgender people can use the restroom of the gender they identify with. News 4's Angela Cristoforos has reaction
6: from local customers.
8: Don, some local shoppers I spoke with today say the policy won't influence their decision to shop there, but more than 900,000 shoppers across the country feel differently.
6: I shouldn't have to worry about going into a restroom you know, whether I'll get arrested or if I'll get attacked, you know, that's something that I have to worry about every time I go somewhere. Cameron
8: Schroffstetter of Buffalo was born a female, but says he knew he felt like a male by the time he was five years old. Something as simple as going to the bathroom has always been a challenge for him.
6: When I was younger in high school, I would hold going to the bathroom and I would end up getting UTIs and, I just didn't feel safe going to
9: restrooms.
8: Schroffstetter applauds Target's announcement to make bathrooms transgender friendly and allow customers to choose whichever bathroom they identify with most. In a statement on Target's website, the retailer stated, inclusion is about creating an environment where everyone feels welcome, including people who have a specific gender identity or expression.
7: Would not stop me from, I think Target is just, you know, I'm trying to appease everybody. I
5: don't feel that there should, should be a problem with them choosing what bathroom they want to go into. It would not affect my decision on going into Target
2: um, in any way, shape or form.
8: But more than half a million people nationwide disagree and have decided to stay out of Target because of their beliefs against the policy.
6: They're attacking trans people and people who don't identify with the sex they were assigned at birth. More so that fact than it is to protect the women and children. But of course, that is what they have said to get the bills passed.
1: Okay.
8: So far, more than 900,000 people have signed an. On-
1: okay, so they're saying 900,000 people would sign this online petition boycotting Target against their policy. So let's find out from Target itself or from someone at Target about their policy. Uh, this is, I paid a visit to Target today to find out just what their bathroom policy is, dot, dot, dot.
5: Okay, friends, I'm in Target store. I'm going to talk to the manager here. Maybe she can give me an answer to the question about, about the restrooms.
1: He'll pause it one second, Rob. Hi, how are you doing? Real quick. So this is a guy named Dave Dobmeyer, who's a, uh, he calls himself the Christian coach. He's based out of Ohio. And apparently he's made it his mission, along with a lot of other people, to go into Target and ask about their bathroom policy and basically to, uh, well, cause problems. So go ahead and play it.
5: Okay, friends, I'm in Target store. I'm going to talk to the manager here. Maybe she can give me an answer to the question about, about the restrooms. How are you oh, doing? doing? Good. Good. My, my name's Dave Doblin. Gianna. Gianna. Nice. I just been hearing a lot of things about your restrooms, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to get it from a horse's mouth rather than stuff you read on the internet. What what is the bathroom policy here? So
9: about? the policy that headquarters sent down mm-hmm. was whatever you identify yourself as is the restroom that you are welcome. Okay.
5: So is it is there? Is, is there any qualifications? I mean, for instance, what would prevent me from right now being able to walk into a woman's restroom?
9: So the only thing they sent to us was, honestly, what you identify yourself as per gender mm-hmm. is where you can choose to go to the restroom. Okay. There's nothing from us that so you guys You guys aren't checking it check or anything or, like that? No, we don't have
5: okay. permission
9: or anything along those lines. You,
5: you understand, those as, as a... Booklet? Guy, it's got a wife and some daughters. That's that's concerning to me. I'm sure you understand that. Yeah, right?
9: I mean, I definitely understand your concern, and I'm um, no ro- hoping to get more information on it, or you know what that entails. But you know, as of right now, that's a policy that's in Okay, down. cool.
5: So, just to make sure that I'm right. I could, in fact, go use the woman's restroom right now.
9: If you identified yourself as a woman, yes.
5: Wow, self-identify. Huh?
9: So um, it's it's based on. It's just based on what the whatever
5: the person thinks. Yep. So they could change tomorrow. I mean, I could think I was a man. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just trying to wrap my brain yeah, around. No, this.
9: I understand. I'm. am glad you bring me your concern. Um, the other thing I could do is we have a phone number. It's our guest relations number. That's more of a specific headquarters number. Yeah. Um, they're the one who have the policy, brought it down to us. And like, you know, no, I understand be because
5: you're the, you're the one that really matters because you're the person on, on the ground here. So if somebody came, you're the one that understands what the policy is. Yep. But this is a store-wide or company-wide, not necessarily you. No, That's not something-
9: yeah, this is every corporate target, policy. And this is corporate policy breaking down. So this will be every target that exists. You're sweetheart. This. Hey, have a good one, okay? Thanks, thanks a lot. Appreciate Enjoy your day. To me. You I, absolutely. Okay,
5: bye-bye. Okay.
1: Okay, so what we just heard that was uh the guy going into Target and asking about their policy. So we heard we heard Target's policy. Now hold on, I got one more clip that I want to play on this. Okay. This one's a little more closer to home. It looks <laughs> like damn it. <laughs> uh, I just gave you a dominant side. This is uh <laughs> nobody knows who that is. It's Mount Juliet Pastor Mount Juliet Pastor goes viral over Target bathroom rant hot issue knew it this yeah. is from our nashville well, station Gregory by the way
4: lock is known for his social media use but this video posted friday afternoon has already garnered more than 13 million views here's why it's a bathroom controversy this mount juliet pastor thought needed to be flushed out just said excuse me she said yes because of the new law you can now use the restroom that you self-identify with. He so says chatter about the change in the Target bathroom policy was swirling around his church and local community. Armed with a cell phone, he took his opinion online. And no Target, I need no further information to know that you have lost your ever-loving mind. I'm fearful of the people that are going to bend the law. Pastor Greg Locke says he thinks allowing people to use their preferred bathroom puts people in danger. He's gotten a huge response on social media with people on both sides. Tennessee Equality Project Director Chris Sanders argues inclusive policies do just the opposite.
7: All Target is really trying to do is welcome people.
1: Uh, And there is no evidence that this leads to an increase of
0: anything that this minister is concerned with.
4: Sanders says Christianity is about love, not discrimination, something he says a pastor of all people should know.
0: What we want
10: people to understand is this is not a weapon.
4: But Pastor Locke says he has no problem with transgender people. It's not that transgender people are going to go in raping folks. That's not the issue at all. They haven't done it, and they're not going to do it. He's worried others may take advantage of the policy, especially if more retailers follow Target's lead. Hashtag Target missed the mark because this was a very, very dumb move. A corporate spokesperson from Target emailed me today saying, We certainly respect that there are a wide variety of perspectives and opinions as a company that firmly stands behind what it means to offer our team an inclusive place to work and our guests an inclusive place to shop, but we continue to believe that this is the right thing for Target. You can also read Target's full policy announcement on that bathroom situation on our website, newschannel5.com. In the newsroom, Rebecca Schleicher, News Channel 5.
1: Okay. Thanks, Rebecca Pastor Lock. Okay. Luke, you're rolling your eyes, laughing. What? Uh, give me your thoughts I, on I'm, it. I'm
3: just, I'm too upset right now. We we have to turn it off. Just just stop, or I'm going to leave.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Is it offending your sensibilities?
3: Is it- <laughs> it, I'm, I'm losing IQ points. And, and I'm already pretty dumb. So that's saying something. <laughs>
1: Oh, okay, so this is a pastor here in uh, Mount Juliet, Tennessee, where I think we actually were in at the moment. Yeah, we're physically in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. So this guy has a church close to where we are, and um, it, you know, one of the things he he he's actually come out put put out a lot of videos, and one of them was about uh, this Mount Juliet school that I believe like actually. Rob, that you have children that attend this school that they're talking about a Muslim uh, a a social studies lesson about Islam and he wanted them, the kids, to fail instead of learning about Islam. But that's either here nor there. This is the same guy. Uh, okay. Okay. And then you have the Easter Bunny chicks
3: that are from Mount Julia too or that's where they were protesting the Easter Bunny.
1: They are protesting Oh, are you talking about the uh the Monster energy drink lady? Yeah. Yeah. She was here, right? No, that was in uh that was in East Tennessee. Oh. Okay. That was like somewhere close to Jonesboro or something like that. I just figured like it that. was Mount
3: Juliet since they're yeah. always the first ones to like jump on the viral train where Yeah. Whatever, well <laughs> whatever's going on. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, that's 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 something totally different. <laughs> We can save that for another, <laughs> another time. But <laughs> the reason she's called the Monster Energy Drink Lady is because she uh, this there was this video that went viral, and where she talked about Monster Energy being uh, associ- energy drink being associated with satanic worship, because apparently the claw marks were the Hebrew letters, the Hebrew letters for the numeral six, and it, so it sprawled out six 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 if you held it upside down. <laughs> uh, it's very famous video i mean we just look it up it's you mm-hmm. know monster energy drink lady like she actually went on like uh tosh.o oh, they actually had her on there. Yeah, the original yeah. video
3: is her in a convention or something right lit, it's lit, so lit yeah some kind
1: of weird convention and she's got like this little poster and yeah <laughs> and just lady get i mean she gets around she gets like uh she goes like a few weeks after that there was this uh Prayer at the National Cathedral the Muslims uh there was a Muslim group doing a prayer there and she just like walks in and just interrupts it and starts screaming about Jesus and all this kind oh, of stuff no. and then it, it, and I, and I'm watching and I was like that's her that's the same lady and she just <laughs> she just pops up again and again and again and, and and then lately she's gone after the Easter Bunny and the uh the the, the pagan <laughs> rabbit anyway. That's a whole other show. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I want to say about this. Okay. Imagine you are a worker at Target. You make. I want to say. Eight dollars an hour. Eight dollars an hour. Nine dollars an hour. You're not making very much money. Right. And maybe you're one like the in the management. So maybe you make like $10. Maybe even maybe you're lucky maybe $11 an hour. Most of the people that work at Target do not give a flying F about the bathroom policy. They do not care about your political viewpoint. They do not care about your ideological viewpoint. They're just there to do a job. And I'm sure at this at this point, they're probably pretty sick and tired. Of people asking them questions. Okay. And the people, it, the video that I saw, this Dave Dobmeier guy that walked in to Target. Well, you still see people shopping there. Walking around like zombies, like Dawn of the Dead in the mall, shopping at Target. You know, nobody's. There's a lot of people in this country that just do not care about this. They, they, you know, they go about their lives, and they're trying to make a paycheck, and they're trying to take care of their families, and that includes the people that work over at Target. And as I said before, Target was stupid for doing this. I agree. I think they were dumb. I think there was no reason for I, I didn't think there's any reason for them to hop on this bandwagon and make some kind of political statement. So they're just as much to blame. There was another video, because I didn't want to make this just clip after clip after clip tonight. Thank you because it already is going to be. (laughs) But there was another video of this guy just walks into Target and just starts yelling. You know, rebuking Target for you know you know, for the sins of this uh, f- for their sins and how they're going to go down and how they're bringing America down. <laughs> Why didn't you play that one? That would have been you the know, best one. Oh <laughs> yeah, we, I, we could probably find it, but it just it just was. Well, I got a good one actually. Rob, you know, pull that one that link that I that I sent you up here. We'll will play it quickly. Yeah, it was a but uh, yeah, I mean, just most of the people out there, they they really do not care. The, uh, the, but here here's okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Was, the, the main I reason I was rolling
3: my eyes during that last one was because, uh, like, that is not a legitimate concern that the pastor was talking about, like, whatsoever. Like, danger and the safety of people in the bathroom, yeah. like that—that that really is just like rock bottom. The the dumbest thing on you on possibly say on
1: episode one thirteen. I read I read about this uh, this thing from Breitbart about this guy that dro- what wa- that dressed in women's clothing and walked into a. Walked into the store, and in California, where apparently nobody is even thinking of having these kind of laws, and I regret some of the stance that I took on that at the time because I really hadn't really studied a lot of it. I thought that there was a good point to that—that somebody could take take advantage of this law.
6: Yeah, I agree. But the thing is,
1: they're doing it anyway. Yeah, well, I
6: felt the same way after the episode. I was like, eh, it's not really how I feel. Mm-hmm. But it was just like I—I I hadn't listened to the clip ahead of time, it and was, it's
1: an emotional response, right? Because you want, because you want, you want to, you want to protect <laughs> your family. You want to protect your kids. You want to protect your right. wife. And it's like you don't want some freako going in there and taking pictures of your kid. You don't want some freako going in there messing with your kid or with your wife. And, and, and you know, you know, it's 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 kind of like it, you can you can see the point. You can understand <laughs> it somewhat regardless it's a crime anyway and And, the police are there to take care of that
6: and the only reason that it's going to happen or get worse is all this attention that's been brought to it it has nothing to do with the transgender community it's just if some wacker out there is if this hadn't popped into their head now it's there for sure because they've
3: definitely heard of it now And, and let's not forget that everyone most every parent is standing outside of the bathroom waiting on their kid to come back out and if the kid comes out screaming then someone's getting their ass kicked
1: it, it, <laughs> right. It, it, and here's a, so here's one thing that uh, you know it's is so frustrating trying to find a source that is completely unbiased that just reports what's just what the hell is going on instead of just everything has to come from this political point of view now everything has to come from the right or from the left you know so. I got this from actually this was on, from a website called Jezebel. Yeah. This is from I'm not gonna play that one because it's really hard to understand the guy. But this is from a website called Jezebel. So I had to go to the Dallas Observer where it was linked to because I just felt like the article there was just way too much well, for lack of a better term, feminazi, okay? <laughs> I know oh, that it'll God. I know that it'll offend some people out Here there. Here comes the hate mail. But okay.
3: <laughs> at least it's not directed yeah. at like me this time.
1: So This is called, this is self-appointed bathroom cop catches Dallas woman using women's restroom. We're not, this is not a clip. I'm reading this. Case in point, the man who heroically barged into a women's restroom at Baylor Medical Center in Frisco. This is somewhere in Texas, I think outside of Dallas. On Thursday, to make sure that Jessica Rush, who manages a local health food takeout place, was peeing in the proper place. She was, for the record, and her situation isn't particularly complicated. Rush was born and identifies as female and has no plans to change that. I look very much like a girl, she says. I'm not trying to transition or anything like that. But Rush does wear her hair in a bleach blonde foul hawk and dresses androgynously. On Thursday, she was wearing a t-shirt from her alma mater, Texas Tech, with basketball shorts. As the man at Baylor explained after walking into the restroom behind her, it's all very confusing. Rush caught the end into the exchange on video. So I'm just going to read what it says from the video. When I saw you enter, I thought you was, the man says, a boy, Rush offers. Yeah, it was kind of confusing. Certainly she can see why. You dress like a man, he says several times as he walks away. Later in the doctor's office lobby where Rush was waiting, and this is the part in the Jezebel article they actually leave out, where Rush was waiting to have a pair of broken fingers looked at, the man elaborated that he was concerned that a man had entered the same bathroom his mother was going to use. The point is, I was helping my mom. I was confused when I see someone entering the woman's bathroom looking like a man. He said, each of one of us is man or woman, so I wanted to make sure she was going to the right place, because in times like these, you can never be too careful. But it's okay. okay for him to
6: go in the women's restroom.
1: Well, he was outside. He didn't the video. In. He was clearly outside. He was okay. talking
6: to her by the door. I thought he followed her in. To he make didn't sure actually she follow. Yeah, he didn't
1: actually follow her in. This is your point. Illustrates it because what the, the the Jezebel the Feminazi article said is he just followed her in and he was harassing her, but he explains himself to her, and basically apologizes. And the reason, but so the reason he did this made himself the self-appointed cop, uh, was because he's probably been reading all these things on Facebook. Right. All these articles and listening to talk radio and all these kind of things. So, he's it's all in his mind and he's thinking, my mom is going to use that bathroom and there's some dude in there that could rape her or do sick things to her. Yeah, and that's what he's thinking.
6: Well, let's get everybody all stirred up and all crazy about this issue because there's nothing else that's important going on right now in our yeah. country. Yeah,
1: you know? I mean, it's only a matter of time before somebody does beat up a transgendered person in the bathroom and possibly hurts them or kills them because something like this something like this happens because you know. Like with the Planned Parenthood shooting, with all this rhetoric that was going on, however, however you feel about that, I don't want to unpack that right now, about the Planned Parenthood videos and all this kind of stuff that was happening, you know, it was, it, this this guy... Facts remain, this guy went to this Planned Parenthood office and shot it up, and as they were carrying him out, he's mumbling under his breath, dead babies. So this kind of thing does happen. People get worked up, and they get a gun, and they go shoot people, and they kill people. Okay, that being said, real cops, and this is what's really concerning to me. All right, I'm getting worked up now. (laughs) Alabama city now says people who violate its bathroom ordinance could face jail time. Jesus. In recent weeks, fights have raged in North Carolina and beyond over bathroom bills, mandating that people use restrooms matching the gender on their birth certificates. One small city in Alabama jumped, just jumped into the fray and in what may be a first added, what may be a new feature to its bathroom measure jail time. This is from the Washington Post, by the way. The city council in Oxford, Alabama, voted Tuesday to adopt an ordinance that would make it a crime for transgender people to use a public bathroom or changing facility different from the one on their birth certificate. The new ordinance posted online by the Anderson Star newspaper also says that anyone violating the ordinance could face up to six months in jail or a $500 fine. The measure in Oxford, a city of about 21,000 people living an hour's drive east of Birmingham, is unprecedented in a- adding criminal penalties like jail time, according to the Human Rights Campaign. Six months in jail, $500 fine.
6: <laughs> like you That's said, what man, they want to do. Let's just, let's just stack on all kinds of laws, like you said. That, that'll fix yeah. it. Yeah. And
1: here's the thing. I don't want it to seem like I'm, you know, picking on conservatives because I'm a conservative guy myself. I'm a Christian guy myself, but I thought conservatives in this country believed in less government. Right. By making laws like the one in North Carolina, you're essentially increasing the power of the government. You are giving them the power over a certain group of people. Not to mention the fact that police are spread thin as it is, and are so hot-tempered and hair-triggered as it is. Like we had, we've had incidents here in Nashville the last few weeks in the projects down in East Nashville. That, you know this kind of thing that's been happening. That could have went way worse. I'm yes. actually impressed at how that. We could have had, like you guys were talking about in the leisure hour, we could have had a Ferguson right here in Nashville. So these are the type of things that are happening. You've got gang violence. You've got all kinds of crime that's going on, you know, and they want to make, they want to police the bathrooms. So are we going to station a cop at every single bathroom while something worse is probably happening down the street?
6: Yeah, it's I I can't help but feel that it's just a diversionary thing,
0: Mm -hmm.
6: which is like what that's why before we started the show, I was agreeing with Luke that, you know, we wanted to get this out there and get get our beliefs and opinions nailed down. But at the same time, after this, I'm refusing to speak about it again. Mm -hmm. I've moved on
1: and I am, too. And I think but I think this is the crux of the issue. I think any time that you have any group that decides we are going to legislate morality or we're going to legislate what people can say and what they cannot say and what they cannot do which is something that the like, like the left likes to do with political correctness all it does is it just hands the government more and more power
6: and limits ours
1: exactly Let's talk about the vice thing because I don't want to make it seem like we're <laughs> we're picking all on the conservatives, we're picking all on the Christians because you know I get it, people are worked up about it, but I think uh your girlfriend Alyssa Rob, put it well. What are we being distracted from? Anytime, and I'm gonna say this: anytime I hear the gay rights stuff or the transgender rights stuff, these issues that really Absolutely, utterly divide people. I think. What's going on? On the other hand, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. Like, what was it with the uh, the, the TPP, <laughs> the Trans-Pacific Partnership, was being passed? Weren't we talking about the Confederate flag at that point? Was it the yeah it was I the think Confederate it was. flag controversy? Yep, yep. So let's talk about Vice.
3: Uh, yeah. So I'm just scrolling through Facebook this morning, and uh, there's a new Vice article. Speaking with people f- that went to Coachella that were dressed in uh, culturally insensitive costumes like Native Americans, uh, Indians, um, you know, come from the country, India, uh, and in Dashikis, uh, Africa. And, you know, I, I side with none of the people that Vice oh. talked to were apologetic about it at all. They're yeah. like, look, man, we're just we're comfortable in these clothes and we're dressing like this because... It looks cool. <laughs> you know? yeah. Here's the first
1: part of the article.
3: Yeah, go for okay. it.
1: Come on, guys. It's 2016. <laughs> I thought it was 2015 last year, right? Get with it. After going over this many, many, many times, we've all decided that wearing someone else's culture is a fashion statement. We've done this before, guys. You know, we've talked about this. Should it be a thing anymore? Some festivals have gone so far as to ban headdresses. Despite this, during Coachella this weekend, explain what Coachella is for everybody that people that may not know what it, that
3: is. There are so many. It's it's an EDM fest, uh, electronic dance music fest, and and there's so many of them springing up like all across the states.
1: Uh, and it's in California, right? Yeah,
3: this one's in California. Um, it's, it's, it's one of the older ones. It's
1: not yeah. one of
6: the biggest ones out there now, but it's definitely it was one of the original ones. True. Yeah, oh, really? a,
3: lo- a lot of my friends just came back from uh, Su Suwanee. I I don't know if I'm saying that right, but Florida. Suwanee, yeah. Suwanee, yeah. But go ahead.
1: I wanted to know why, pe- I, I, despite this, during Coachella this weekend, I saw a whole bunch of people wearing dashikis, bindis, cornrows, and hair headdresses, <laughs> and they're all white people, by the way. Well, one guy's Hispanic looks like it. I wanted to know why people were still okay with wearing this stuff in the face of so many push, so much pushback. Did they feel conflicted about wearing it? Were they just unaware of the controversy or did they feel like it was a valid fashion choice? Like the girl pictured above sporting a headdress who told me she absolutely did not feel weird about her outfit. <laughs> can we come
6: on? Can we really? Real quick, can we Google a list of acceptable white? Um, hairdos just so i know like
1: polo shirt and like short hair (laughs) right i mean that's what you're supposed to wear apparently (laughs) i have to have a crew cut now man these people in these pictures right here i mean they look like some hardcore racists (laughs) let me tell you i mean like i mean they would fit so well in with the clan some hardcore potheads (laughs) they're just hipsters trying to have fun and vice apparently is just trying to be relevant Oh my god. And I generally like Vice. I like the show on HBO. Right. I enjoy the documentaries. I think they have, but but like this kind of stuff is just garbage. But this is the kind of stuff that's reflective of what I was just talking about. Again, it's 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 not necessarily it is it is in a way legislating a certain form of morality. Because you're just trying to say, well, you can't wear that because you don't know what it's like to be a black person and have cornrows. You don't know what that's like to be an Indian, and and you don't know what that's like to 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 to, you. you, Why are you wearing a dashiki? Because you don't know what that. That's not your culture. It's ridiculous. On one hand, they want us to be multicultural, right? They want us to be inclusive. But then, when you wear a dashiki, or you, or a girl points her hair in cornrows, you
3: can't do that. Yeah, in my it point, contradicts itself. My point to Adam too is like for centuries, and, and even in elementary school, like we've all we've been dressing up as different characters, and that's mainly how I see it. You know, like it, it's a it, you're you're acting like you're pretending to be a character. You know, uh, it's well, that there's nothing culturally <laughs> insensitive about that.
6: To no, me. and and you're. <laughs> You're almost paying homage to it and showcasing something that was an actual yeah. element of of their culture. They're, there's nothing derogatory about it. It's nothing huh. negative about it. It's right. not
3: the, these people dressed in in these different ethnic outfits are like appreciate. They're wearing them to appreciate the culture because they like it. They think it's cool, right?
1: Because <laughs> yeah. Lord knows when you were in Middle Ages Africa, everybody was running around with a dashiki on, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Well, I mean, this is like it's the same thing as saying, "Oh, Rob,
6: you can't listen to rap music.
3: Mm-hmm. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. You, you don't right. know the struggle. Yeah, mm-hmm.
6: <laughs> I like it. I'm sorry, some of it I like, and I'm going to listen to it.
1: Yep. I mean, it's just it's absurdity, utter absurdity. Now, here's something that maybe you want to add anything about else about that?
6: No, thing? I'm done, Rob. <laughs> no I'm just I now I gotta
1: buy a headdress just to prove a point yeah just do it man we're gonna be a <laughs> paradise symposium. you just wear a headdress i want to put my hair in corn <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna have a dashiki and uh maybe we get Robert to put his hair in cornrows
6: yeah there's enough of us we can cover all of it I think yeah
1: I, th- I think somebody wears a bindi
6: yeah I'll
3: look all Bollywood for you guys
1: yeah exactly exactly all right now we have an alert <laughs> I want to talk about the Temple of Baal. Sweet. That's what I want to talk about. Now, last year, ISIS took over the ancient city of Palmyra, which is a city in Syria that is thousands of years old. I mean, inhabited by humans from a long period of time. Uh, there is a t- lot of Greco-Roman ruins from the Hellenistic age. Stuff probably dates back from the time of Alexander the Great, probably even longer than that. And it's a world heritage site. The United Nations declared it a world heritage site a while ago because of just the, the value of the ruins there, the cultural value. Well, while ISIS had it and they don't have it anymore because the Syrian government forces took it back. Um, ISIS blew up some of the pagan temples because ISIS being radical Islamic, they don't believe in any kind of temples to any other kinds of, yeah, kinds of which, gods. Which is what
3: pisses me off more than okay? any other other actions.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's horrendous. Uh, the Taliban did this in Afghanistan when they took over, there were these two, uh, Buddha statues that had been there since the ancient Indian empire an ancient Buddhist empire that stretched into Afghanistan. And they actually built these things and they were huge. I mean, they were, they were some of the marvels of the, they would have been a marvel. The ancient world had the Greeks known about them. Well, the Taliban blew them up and ISIS copied them in 2015 with blowing up this arch of ball in Palmyra. And go ahead. We have yet another clip. I went clip crazy.
5: New structure in the history of this city. Ladies and gentlemen, the proud arch of Palmyra. Three, two,
1: one. You can see the arch being raised. It's just... They're raising this in London and in New York. They're doing this as a tribute to... also to show defiance of the know-nothing nihilist maniacs who tore it down. This thing stood for 2,000 years. Everybody came and invaded or conquered that part of the world. The Greeks, the Alexander the Great, the Romans, you name it. The the Christians, the the Muslims. No one until Daesh, a so-called Islamic state, thought it was worth uh, demolishing. And I have... Pitiful, how pathetic, how inadequate they must be.
7: It's nothing like the real thing. It's, well, it's, it's nice that it's here and people think it about Palmyra. I was there before all the destruction occurred, and it really is heartrending to see what's happening. What, I mean, what's been, it's sheer ignorance, basically.
10: London's Trafalgar Square is welcoming a new addition to its famous landmarks, a recreation of a destroyed arch from the ancient Syrian city of Palmyra, created using 3D carving technology. The nearly 2,000-year-old Arch of Triumph was one of the most recognizable sites in Palmyra. Islamic State militants seized the city in May 2015 and destroyed the famous landmark. This recreation has been made by the Institute of Digital Archaeology, a joint venture between Harvard University, the University of Oxford, and Dubai's Museum of the Future.
6: There's broad agreement in in the the West anyway, in in places where people love democracy, that nobody has the right to to, to censor history, that the marketplace of ideas should be as packed full as it possibly can be, and when people edit, delete things, they should be be restored.
10: The Institute promotes the development and use of digital imaging and 3D printing techniques in archaeology, art history, and museum conservation.
6: The first step is to create a a very accurate 3D rendering of of the structure. Uh, So what that typically means is amassing a huge number of 3D photographs. We use drones to get shots from overhead. Uh, We we, uh, 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 create as large as possible uh, an archive of photographs specific to the object.
10: The recreation of the Arch of Triumph is being unveiled as part of UNESCO's World Heritage Week. Palmyra was designated a World Heritage Site in 1980. Islamic State demolished some of its best-known monuments, including two large temples dating back more than 1,800 years. Rescue work of the relics started in late March, after the city was recaptured by Syrian government forces.
1: Okay, so that's it uh, on that. Uh, that is talking about what they've raised, the, these replicas that were made by, these, by 3D printing technology. Our friend Joe would be geeking out over it. <laughs> uh, they've made these replicas and they're going to put them in uh, New London, which they've already done. They've already raised it in London. And they're also, I think they've raised another one in New York. So this is in salute to this temple that was destroyed by ISIS. Okay. By these religious fanatics that couldn't accept anything else. Uh, but apparently... They are portals to the gates of hell, according to some. Will a gateway be opened when the arch from the Temple of Baal is reconstructed in Times Square? This is from End of the American Dream, by the way. So what that has to do with the end of the American dream, I really don't know. In, part of the, in April, part of the Temple of Baal that stood in Paimara, Syria, will be reconstructed in Times Square in New York City and in Trafalgar Square in London. The specific portion that is being erected in both cases is the 40-foot tall arch that stood at the entrance to the temple. The Institute of Digital Archaeology is the organization behind this effort, and the display of these two arches is intended to be the highlight of UNESCO's World Heritage Week late next month. After seeing my initial story, one of my readers observed that an arch is really just a gateway or a portal. In other words, it can serve as both an entrance and an exit. So could it be possible that we will be unknowingly setting up a gate or a portal of some sort in Times Square? Dun dun dun. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> the worship of Baal, also known as Baal, can be traced all the way back to ancient Babylon. According to the Encyclopedia Marta- Britannica, Marduk was the chief god of the city of Babylon, and ultimately he became known as Baal, our lord. Okay, does anyone else find out, find out, else out there find this more than just a little bit creepy? This sounds like a plot for some really twisted episode of Stargate, and not something that is supposed to happen in the real world. And as I reported yesterday, the Institute of Digital Archaeology hopes to put hundreds more of these arches in major cities all over the planet. What in the world are they thinking?
6: Okay. I smell a field trip coming up.
1: Yes, (laughs) I do too. I know that all this may sound very strange to you. But many of these secret societies and occult groups take this stuff deadly seriously, and many Christian scholars are convinced that there is a link between the coming of the Antichrist and this ancient pagan deity, based on the actual historical figure of Nimrod.
7: The Palmyra Arch has been unveiled in London. I want you to put music like this under every podcast. Came after the portal was opened. And this was opened in Trafalgar Square, London. I can do that. It's a done deal. The Ark has been erected and the portal is opened and now they will send it to New York. At some point, it's a wrap. Jesus is coming. Tribulation will start. The Antichrist will rise and implement the mark of all. This right before Passover of 2016. The guy in the video says that he sees black entities. Do we see any black entities? Well, I watched it for a little while. I did see something dark, gray. Uh, I'm not sure what it was, but it was a fleeting shadow of some kind. Now we're aware of what this significance is of this arch. A monument recreated of the destroyed arch of the Triumph in Palmyra, Syria and it's been unveiled in London's Trafalgar Square. It's 1,800-year-old arch. The original was destroyed last October. It's six meters, that's 20 feet. The model is 20 feet tall, made in Italy from Egyptian marble. And it's intended as an act of defiance to show that restoration of the ancient site is possible if the will is there. This was done by 3D printing.
1: I want this. I Another want this music, every show
7: of the same type is uh, exactly the same type will be erected in New York City. Now, concerning these shadows and people saying that it's created a portal for demonic entities, that's very well uh, possible because just like the power of the cross deters demonic entities. Other things like this, where child sacrifice and human sacrifices were taking place in uh, Syria, uh, have a very negative connotation and, of course, would attract demonic spirits. They would carry a curse with them. And now we have countries like um, the UK and the United States, where we have a lot of Masonic brotherhoods, uh, being satanic groups, anti-Christian, that is, uh, okay. trying to erect these up okay. as well. Right. No?
1: All right. All right. <clears throat> I did fail to mention, by the way, that uh, today, as we're recording this on May 1st, 2016, is the 240th anniversary of the founding of the Illuminati. So I mm. do want to bring that out. Um,
6: <clears throat> well, hey, uh, happy birthday,
3: Illuminati.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Adam Weishaupt, for... Uh,
3: Real quick, I, I don't mean to delay us or anything, but has anyone even made an outline of like who these Illuminati guys are? <laughs> I, I mean, who, who, I'm sorry, who founded the Illuminati when we don't even know like where they're located or who's involved? Well, or supposedly
1: anything? Adam helped founded the Illuminati in Ingolstadt. There was a re- historical Illuminati. Okay. It did actually exist. Now, whether it still exists, that's a whole other thing. Let's stick to the issue at hand. All right. Okay. I want to pack this again. Just like we did with the bathroom issue. The arches are destroyed by a religious fundamentalist group. Totally demolished. In salute to this world treasure that has been destroyed, this treasure from the ancient world, they erect in London and New York these this gate to ball. Now you have people on the fringe Christian media of which we are kind of affiliated with. I must admit all of a sudden start talking about how this is a bad thing because it's going to bring demons into the world. Speculate all of a sudden, maybe this is actually how, what ISIS thought about it too. Wait
3: a minute. <laughs> I, I doubt ISIS has many crackpot new agers.
1: Oh, no. Oh, no. They have people that believe a lot of strange things. I mean, there's a lot of people in the Muslim world that are very suspicious of Freemasonry oh. and the Illuminati and all those kind of stuff. I, I guess mean, That, got a point that there. exists in the Muslim world. Trust me. Most of them think the Jews are all behind it.
6: So, <laughs> so they're just trying to protect us from demons?
1: No, I think what I'm saying is, is that... You have people out there that are trying to, and I'm going to defend the people that are erecting these and say that they're just trying to make an effort to restore something that has been lost to us culturally. Right. And you have another group of people in the fringe Christian community led by places like Skywatch TV. And this is what bugs me about the fringe Christian world. Is we come up with some interesting stuff, but we also come up with stuff that is just so outlandish and so out there and people buy it and people believe it. And in this case, I really think that it makes people in that, in that community look no better than ISIS because they're believing essentially the same thing that ISIS is believing about them.
6: Right. Yeah, I hear you.
1: It's ironic. It's like it goes full circle. Very superstitious. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's almost to the point of just like, again, so much other stuff that's going on in the world, the Syrian civil war that this was a very, very small part of, and all the people that are dying out there, you know, should we be concerned about that instead of the temple of Baal being erected because there's going to be a portal that's going to open and, you know, when the the events of the book of Revelation happen, they're going to happen. But like there is a certain people out there in the Christian fringe community that make money off of this stuff to sell books, to get, you know, hits on the Internet. And it's just like this kind of stuff just makes me be like, please stop.
6: <laughs> well, I'm a big believer that most prophecies are self-fulfilling. And that if ideas are put out there and enough people believe in it, then you're going to have people um, even subconsciously driving everything towards, towards that end. You know, if they truly believe that this is the way things have to go, they're going to push it there. So, I mean, I understand, I understand why people are out there looking for signs and, you know, looking for something to believe in, looking for something to get behind. But these are replicas. They weren't (laughs) even built with an intent like there's no energy put behind it
3: I guess everyone's lost interest in the Parthenon, right? Like it's no longer a
1: yeah, well, that's just hey. a pagan. Yeah, you know? I mean, we have a, we would have a portal here in Nashville too, right? Because there's a <laughs> replica of the Parthenon with a huge Athena statue with a snake next to her. But yeah, I guess nobody really cares yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, it's, right. a, you know, it's I mean, been there a long time. All, the, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it, every. I mean, this just stuff is just it. It just it just happens. You know, people. There's people that are fascinated by classical mythology, and 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 there are people out there that are that are really into the occult and really do want to bring things through, but whether all oh, that's whether that's all connected? I'm so down. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, I know you're down for it, right? I do, I just I just I guess I just want people to think, you know, think about what you're saying and think about what you're doing. I mean, it's like you know, I I look at that and I think. It's like, it, like I said, it goes full circle. It starts with one group of Islamic extremists, I mean, one group of religious extremists, and then the other group, another group of religious extremists, grabs hold of it and says, "Oh wait, you know that's not a good idea." It's like it goes full circle. So it's like, shouldn't we be? I don't know. Shouldn't we be kind of like saying that is a tragedy? It's it's a travesty that those things were destroyed. Yeah, I don't care if it's the Temple of Baal. Uh, I I can sleep at night. I I don't go to bed at night thinking, oh, the Nephilim are going to come through the through the portal and destroy me. I used to really think like that too. I I used to really think like that because I was so into this stuff. And now, especially since we've been doing this show, I've gotten a lot less and less away from that kind of thing. And, and, and more uh, and more the things that are actually really concerning about
3: the world. What, like the, the statistic on all that too is just, just disgust me every time I think about it. Like we're looking at, we're looking at hundreds of historical sites, like mm-hmm. not just this one that's catching attention, but hundreds. And right. then we're talking about thousands of individual museum items that have been destroyed
1: and also being sold on a black market too, because I would love selling those things. Yeah. You'd have like a statue of ball in your house, right? I would, (laughs) I would I would buy everything. You'd just be selling it on on eBay, dude. No, I wouldn't sell that stuff. I would totally keep that. (laughs) So that's my point about that. You know, and I'll probably we we'll, we'll maybe get some hate mail or get some love mail for that one, but <laughs> it, it it is what it is. I just I guess it's just looking at things with like a critical point of view instead of just like, if I was 15 years old, I'd probably be sitting there like, "Whoa, dude, oh man, They're opening a portal <laughs> You know it, it's just like I, just it, it's just gone so beyond just what we really need to be focusing on in this world. Where are we at, Rob on time? Oh, just shy of an hour. Just shy of an hour? Okay. I thought this would be fun to read. Uh, this is a little different than what we've been talking about. This is Park Rangers Describe creepiest Things They've Seen. I got one that's a story for you, Luke. Okay. Mysterious stranger stalks camp at night. I once, these are park rangers talking about this, telling stories. I once led a trip to the top of Mount Sterling, North Carolina. It's a tough climb to get to the top and about six miles from the nearest road. I was leading a group of eight middle school kids and had one co-instructor. We were camping out on top of the mountain. It was a beautiful night with a full moon. The kids and the other co-instructor went to bed in their tents. I chose to spend the night in a hammock that night. I was really into a book I was reading, so I stayed up and read till about 10.30 p.m. I turned my headlamp off to settle in for the night. Everything around me was rather bright from the moon and from the position I was in. I could see down the trail we had hiked to get to the top. I laid there enjoying the scenery and noticed something moving on the trail. Bears are common in the area, so I perked up. As it got closer, I could tell it was a person. We were in the middle of nowhere, and there was someone hiking up the trail with no headlamp or any gear. I was just frozen, watching this person move closer to our camp. They arrived at the top of the mountain where we were and just stopped. I watched it was what appeared to be a man surveyed our camp. I really could only see the outline of him. He stood there for what seemed like 30 minutes, but may have been 10. He then turned and sat down under a tree facing our camp. He was sitting up in a way that I knew he wasn't trying to sleep. He just sat there staring at our camp. I had no idea what to do. I decided to wait it out. I waited, just staring at the man while he stared at my camp. This went on until about 3.30 a.m. Then he stood up, took a moment to survey my camp a few minutes longer, and then went back down the trail he came up on. I, to this day, have no idea what this was all about, but it freaked me out. I was paranoid that we were being followed for the rest of the trip. Perfectly severed deer head found on an isolated road in Yellowstone. I'm a ranger at Yellowstone. A couple weeks ago, I was exploring the Lamar Valley, about 11 miles to the nearest road, and even further to the park boundary. There, in the middle of the trail, is a perfectly severed deer head. No blood, no raggedness on the severance. Perfectly intact. This is weird because I have been wolf and bear kills, and I used to, don't say anything, Luke. And I used to find a cougar kills in South Dakota with radio tracking just after the cougar made them. This is not any of those things. The head was completely uneaten. Eyes, tongue, everything intact. Even the ravens hadn't touched it yet. No catching, no scat. Right right smack in the trail, but again, no blood. Even a human doing it made no conventional sense. It was a doe, so it had no antlers. Plus, why leave it in the trail? Whole, oh, no. Whole thing, even in broad daylight, Gave me chills, just an ocean of waving grass, bison calmly grazing, and a perfectly clean deer head right on the path. A park worker finds an abandoned house with a sinister shed, a shed behind an abandoned house with a still-reinforced door broken off the hinges. The windows of the shed were boarded up from the outside. The only thing inside the shed was a queen-sized bed with shredded partly singed white sheets. Random gunshot fired in the middle of nowhere. Camping 80 plus miles from anything resembling civilization, lying in the tent, talking about falling asleep when all of a sudden a gunshot rings out no more than 100 yards away. Then hearing the sound slowly travel away, then quiet. Another ranger says, I saw a human thumb nailed to a tree. Ugh. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Suicide victim left hanging from tree for hours until medical examiner arrives. I found a dead man in a tree. I'm a seasonal ranger for my local forest district. The rest of the rangers say we, found about one suicide, we find about one suicide a year, so here was the one for the year. When we go around opening parks each day, we drive through to make sure everything is okay. In this instance, I was driving through and had just lost sight of the road when I saw a man hanging from a tree in the clearing. He had hung himself. I called the cops in the corner. The coroner took an hour to show up, and he was the only one with a ladder long enough to cut the gun cut the guy down. So I stared at a dead guy in a tree for an hour. Okay. Family pet shot and left to die in the forest. US Forest Service here. Dog skeleton still leased to a tree. Bullet hole in skull. This was great. It's <laughs> right up your alley, Luke. Okay. I've been a ranger in the Southern Canadian Rockies for a few years. One Sunday morning, I was doing my di- daily patrols. Saw some smoke from afar and thought I would check it out. When I arrived on the scene, there was a group of people, half naked, only sexual parts exposed, dressed up as animals, all curled up in a ball, passed out on the ground. <laughs> Probably one of the weirdest things I have come oh, across. No.
5: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs>
7: <laughs>
1: I was surveying a remote restoration site near an old trail, and I heard someone walking up a nearby path. All the hair on the back of my neck started, stood on end, so I grabbed all my stuff and started casually walking down the trail like I belonged there. I turned the corner, and there was a shirtless guy swinging a crowbar around in circles. And when he saw me, he started yelling, I've got a crowbar. I've got a crowbar. I think I nodded at him, squeaked something like, nice crowbar, and then ran the mile or so back to my truck. <laughs>
3: Dude, that's what nightmares are made of right there. <laughs> that's a nice crowbar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice crowbar, man. All right. So that's uh <laughs> some of the weird things that forest rangers have seen. Well, like- the furry party in the middle of the woods. Oh, dude. <laughs> I think I had That a, stuff freaks you out. No, this, I think I had this, a dream. That just like bothers you, doesn't it? I think <laughs> I had a dream
3: one time of like a bunch of furries like crowded around a dead animal, like pulling gut strings out oh, of it. <laughs> <laughs> and like blood running down you the You sure front that of their was a dream?
1: Days. You sure you weren't really in this like, a, like some, uh, some like a World of Warcraft guild party or something? <laughs> I, I was probably
3: just like watching too many metal videos. You, and, prob- like, you probably were,
1: dude. You probably were. <laughs> All right, dude, where are we at on time here? Oh, uh, 105. 105. Okay. Uh, well, anything else we want to talk about? think okay, We can call it. Um, we're going to go, I think, go watch Iron Sky. Yes, we are. Because and Game of Thrones. Well, I, they don't have, I don't think they have HBO here, but, uh, we have a pretty cool thing that happened the other day. The reason we're watching this movie, uh, I got an email from this guy that listens to our show off a of Dark Matter Network. And uh, he's from Finland, and he's one of the writers and uh, concept uh, writers for the movie Iron Sky and the movie Iron Sky 2. After all the...
3: Crap, I was talking about the film. Yeah. yeah. Well, he,
1: he, well, what it was was that I think you brought his attention because we were talking about Leibach. Yeah. That's what. And Leibach does the soundtrack for both of the movies and Iron Sky 2 is coming out and it looks just absolutely just wild. <laughs> I mean, just, just absolutely ridiculous. And we're going to have him as a guest on the show coming up, uh, hopefully next month. Cause he's going to be at the Cannes Film Festival. I guess they're going to be, uh, pitching the, the, uh, the movie out there. Is it, this kind of like an independent production?
3: The plot sounds so interesting that I would actually go to a theater to see it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, is there anything else we want to add, guys? Uh, we will go ahead and we will go to the interview. Uh, I want to, th- you know, thank you guys. So you got—I don't know, Luke. You may be with me tomorrow for the interview, and Rob, you—you'll be in Memphis. I'll be in Memphis. But so what you be doing over there? Oh. Rob does cool things.
6: Yeah, I'm. I'm recording. It's going to be a radio broadcast for Sirius XM for the band uh, Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night Sweats.
1: Yeah, the song uh, "Son of a Bitch." Yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. So, so all right, guys. Well, um, should we do the closeout now, or uh, we'll we are we'll just go ahead and I guess we'll go ahead and we'll go to the interview. We'll have uh, Scotty Roberts and John Ward and guys thanks for listening and we'll be back on Conspiranormal
3: New tropics.
1: All right, Welcome back to Conspiranormal guys it's the very next day from what you just heard uh, it's 24 hours later And tonight we're supposed to have two guests on the show and a third person joining us, but, uh, we have two that are MIA. Uh, one is probably asleep. The other is, uh, Mr. is John Ward, who now is in Minneapolis. But I have his, uh, his great counterpart and his partner, Scotty Roberts is here to join us. Hey, Scotty, how's it going? Hey, Adam, good. And
2: and listen, I've always got to say, not that there's anything wrong with that, but when people call me John's partner, we always have to nowadays say, you know, business partner, right? Right, right, right. We're not yeah. like partner, partner. We're not having kids and getting a cottage by the shore together or
1: anything. I mean, well, it's, it's 2016, Scotty. I mean, why not? You got to be progressive, right? Uh,
2: that's right. That's right. <laughs> or at least be sensitive to progressive.
1: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we are the reason I have you on. I was going to have John on as well. Um, I where, where what happened to him? Where, where well, is he at? You know, the uh, the reason they're here in the the Twin Cities area in Minnesota
2: is uh, Maria got a grant for their archaeological site Gebel Silsila down south of Luxor, Egypt. And that grant comes through Lund University and does has something to do with uh, the University of Minnesota being one of the universities that she can carry out the details of that grant at. And uh, so she ended up at the University of Minnesota. And she could have chosen any university in the United States, and she chose the University of Minnesota so John could be here working with me. Uh, so we could, I, I said, she told me that we're floating down the Nile on the boat. And she said, you know, she says, I took that, that university so you and John could be together. And I said, that is so lovely of you. And, I was
1: uh, wondering actually if that was a, co- if that was some kind of weird coincidence. I was wondering about that, how, how John ended up in Minnesota.
2: So she's doing research work there. And, um, uh, so she's at the university of Minnesota and, uh, they're living, uh, just right across the river. I'm in Wisconsin, which is almost everybody here in my town works in Minneapolis or St. Paul. It's right across the river. And, uh, so they're across the river. They have to stay on the Minnesota side because of the U of M connection. And, uh, they're in a nice little, uh, Berg hamlet, you could say of, of Stillwater, which is a very nice place. And uh you know it's got the old downtown area and the with the old buildings it was an old mill town. They were originally going to use uh, Stillwater as the capital of Minnesota like 150 years ago whatever it was. And uh, uh but they didn't. And so that's the town, a lot of old Victorian mansions and everything all around and John's right in the middle of all that. And what's nice, you know, unlike your typical neighborhoods, he's a, he's renting a nice house there. And uh, all the neighbors have one by one come over and introduced themselves. He had one neighbor from one of the big mansions next door, brought a cake over. And uh, he says, he looks at me yesterday, he goes, I got a cake. And uh, I said, well, la <laughs> And uh And uh, so they're all, uh, oh, you're the archaeologist who's moved
1: in. So uh, John and Maria are having a, a nice time in their neighborhood. And, uh, uh, um, Uni- university of Minnesota, is that, is that in St. Paul or is it in Minneapolis?
2: Uh, it's actually both. They have campuses in both, but, but it's primarily, I think in Minneapolis okay. and uh, it's in an area and there's a little town within the city limits that's built up of just a little business district that runs a few blocks in every direction. And, uh, it's, uh, they call it, they've called it dinky town for years. It's the campus village. And it's right on the, it's right in the borders of Minneapolis. So it's kind of neat. And it's a nice little place. I used to, you know, frequent comic book shops down there in the eighties. And, uh, we've got Magus Books, who is one of our sponsors every year for the Paradigm Symposium. Uh, they're, they're out of Dinky Town. They've been there for 35, 40 years, I think. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's a nice little place.
1: Well. It just I don't think really matter that John 's not here, not really too upset about it, because next week we're going to be up there with you guys in in Minneapolis at the Paradise Symposium. you are in ski coming up pretty soon it's uh, coming up uh, next thursday the it'll be the twelfth through the fifteenth right we're going to be heading up there on the eleventh and uh, we should be there. Late that night, probably at some point. So it's going to be about a 13 thirteen-hour drive from us, from us, from Nashville. So
2: I think all our speakers, uh, we just did all their airfare not long ago, and everybody's flying in on Wednesday, the eleventh. Excellent. uh, The hotel Wednesday the eleventh, and uh, it's a little different this year. We're not well. The last couple of years, three years. You know what? Come to think of it every year except the first year of the Paradigm Symposium we have not been at a hotel and so uh, um, we're not doing the event at a hotel we're holding it at the Paul Revere Masonic Lodge which is also known as the Templar Lodge and uh, over in uh, one of the western suburbs of Minneapolis it's a pretty neat place so everybody arrives Wednesday Micah, is a, Micah Hanks who is emceed the Paradigm Sympos- Symposium with me every year is uh, not going to make it until Friday afternoon, so John's going to fill in for him the first day. And uh, then Micah. Micah is, I believe, the only late arriver we have.
1: Yes, yeah, he filled me in on that, that he was going to kind of be there a little late, yes. But yeah. uh, you've made a statement on Facebook that this is probably going to be the last year. This is probably be the last uh, symposium. Well, um, so an added bonus for us to come as well, I think, if, if this is indeed going to be the last.
2: Yeah, I think this is going to be the last one and I am pretty pretty convinced in myself. The only reason I say that and uh, everybody knows we had some problems and we had to postpone the symposium from last October to this May. And the postponement was due to financial issues. I mean just out and out financial issues. And it drained our coffers, we lost a lot of money on it and we couldn't put we couldn't afford to put the show on. And uh, we've made no bones about that ever. And uh, so I postponed it. And uh, uh, the Paradigm Symposium, when I started it, the whole purpose of this thing was to make something worthwhile. We saw all these little events that were going on all the time. And Micah Hanks and I actually were the ones that that devised it and put it together originally. And uh, we said, why can't we do a symposium that kind of bridges the gap? And we're really trying to do something that means something, and it expresses our passions, the passions of those that come to speak. And, uh, and you know, of course, that first year, I remember saying to Micah, I said, well, oh, how hard could it be? I said, we just get a bunch of speakers, and we get a hotel, and we charge ticket money. And uh, um, I said, maybe we'll even make a little bit on the side. I said, how about that? And we, how hard could it be? Those words have come back to haunt me for four years. Yeah. And um, there is always... Ah uh, these events cost upwards of about sixty to eighty thousand dollars to put on, especially the kind we do because we bring in a lot of speakers. Uh, we've had speakers in from overseas. Uh, we've had some speakers that are very well known out there that cost us twenty thousand dollars just to get well, I'm exaggerating it's nineteen thousand three hundred dollars. Yeah, well, and close,
1: close enough, Scotty. Close
2: enough for rock and roll, as they say. And yeah. uh, so, so these things are expensive to do, and I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> the only problem is in: do we are we able to fund ourselves through just ticket sales alone? One would think, but you can't. Um, and so you have to bring in advertisers and sponsors and things like that. And uh, I said at the very beginning, I will do the paradigm symposium as long as it's fun. And that's the bottom line for me. I'm doing things, everything I do with the magazine, with the radio, with the books we write, with the symposium, with history trippers. These are all things that are passions of mine. And I'm doing the things with Intrepid Mag. I say I'm doing the things I want to do. I'm writing about the things I want to write about. I'm gathering around me the the, the kinds of people that I respect and that I, I love to promote their work. And uh, be associated with that, affiliated with that, and uh, where it, it stopped becoming fun for me was not the event itself. It doesn't matter how harrowing it is to get to the day of the event, but when you're at the event, it's an amazing time. Um, but for those of us behind the scenes, it's it's a. Uh, there are some days where you just sit and. Bang your head on the desk. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. You say, "How am I going to make that happen?" Oh, what? To, what am I going to do now? Um, you know, we've had, and it's always revolved around raising money. And I hate raising money. I don't mind selling stuff. I don't mind writing a book and selling it. I don't mind yeah. painting something and selling it. I don't. I don't. I don't mind that. Um, but I don't like going to people and saying, "Well, Mister Adam Sane, uh, can we put you on for five thousand dollars sponsorship this year?" And uh, and I hate that aspect of this. And uh, then when you lose a sponsor, uh, like last year, we, we had several sponsors that were going to do, they committed to something. And then when it came down to the wire, they said, you know, ah, we love you guys. We just can't do it. We don't have it in the budget. The CEO won't approve it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then you end up for the last few weeks scrambling and ready to rob a bank. Uh, just to make sure uh, uh, either your name is saved your reputation is clean and uh, and you get the show off the ground well and I don't so, want
1: you to rob any banks
2: Scotty uh, haven't yet. I haven't checked but uh, I, I think this has been part of the uh, it's part of in a, in a way it's part of theater it's part of entertainment uh, it doesn't matter what we're doing we call ourselves high and mighty we're a an educational symposium you know uh, we're presenting information scholarly work, academic work um we're balancing the academic against the alternative. we can use all the hoity toy we want with, it, and it really comes down to we're putting on a show and uh um and that's the way people view you sometimes so uh uh you know, I always think of the little rascals, remember them our gang and the little rascals movies, yeah. Uh, uh, I remember uh, Spanky would always say to Alfalfa, I know, let's put on a show. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of what we, what we hail to sometimes when we're doing all this stuff. And I'm not complaining here. I'm not crying in my soup or anything like that. I'm just saying when it became more I had to deal with the business side of this, I hated it. And it became less my passion and more I've got to get nine months of business out of the way so I can enjoy the passionate side. Right. So uh, right, uh um, that- and, and
1: at, at the same time, I mean, at the same time you, you've you done it and you can kind of put that under your belt and, you know, check right. that off, like well, check that off the bucket list, you know, it's
2: our fourth one. And, uh, there are shows out there that are really good. I, I've heard good things about contact in the desert. I know wow. that there is the, the AR, uh, ARC show. Uh, is it ARC? Uh, A-R-E on Virginia Beach, I know that there's some very good things going on out there, and some of these is is uh, uh, we have to ask ourselves, can we compete with that? People have finite amounts of dollars in their bank account to go see a show and to go hear people speak and uh, so, like even our event, we'll probably have to capitalize more on Minnesota people coming, although we do still have people coming from all over the country, so um all of that goes into that stew. That when you sniff and go, hmm, that smells like I don't want to do this again next year. And um, so that's kind of what led to that. And I, I have always said rather tongue in cheek, if uh, I'm not doing another one of these paradigm symposiums, unless God himself sticks his face out of a crack in the clouds and says, <laughs> Scotty Roberts, you will do another paradigm symposium. And I'll say, yes, I'm averting my eyes, oh, Lord. And uh, so, anyway, the, that's that's really what went into the decision. And you can maybe tell I'm a little up in the air about that. Uh, don't tell yeah. my wife I'm a little up in the air about that. She's like, oh, thank God. You're going to move on to something else. She well, said, does
1: she listen to normal? So, I mean. Oh, well, she doesn't listen to my show. <laughs> yeah. I, I well. once asked her, Have
2: you read any of my books? And she said, what books? So. There's my wife. But she is the one, I will say this. She is the woman who allows me to wake her up at 225 in the morning while she's sleeping. And I'm reading a book on uh, modern translations of Sumerian cuneiform.
0: And oh, I wake tough. her up and I go, are you awake?
2: And she go, what? I go, well, you got to hear this. And she sits up on a elbow and props her head on her hand, and she goes, "Go ahead, read it to me." So, (laughs) so she's she's stalwart in that respect.
1: Well, let me ask you this, Scotty. Uh, This is kind of a two fold question. Do you think some of this is some of these more successful um, stuff, like you mentioned, contact in the desert, whatever that was in Virginia Beach, you were talking about? Some of these probably have a lot of wealthy financial backers. uh, There has to have behind them. And then also, too, do you think that some of this, people are just not as interested in going to these events because they can hear things on podcasts or they can I think they, they can that, see things online or they don't want to travel necessarily? Do you a, think some of that's yeah. a, a combination there?
2: That's a huge factor. We have a, had a lot of people ask us the last couple of years, are you going to be streaming this live? And my answer is usually more polite than this, but I want to say, well, hell no. Uh, Why would I stream this live Um, if Socrates was here speaking? Would we stream him? Would you want to watch him streaming or would you want to sit at his feet and listen to his words and experience being in his presence? And now, granted, uh, uh, there are a lot of people that you could plug into the moniker of kind of like Socrates. And uh, um, but the way I look at it is we're trying to present a forum where you get to come and you get to listen to people, sit at their feet, rub shoulders with them, talk with them, spend time with them for four days. That's one thing that has always been a staple of the Paradigm Symposium, and probably other events too. I'm, I'm not trying to make us unique in this statement. But something I always ask my speakers to do is I said, I always want you to be available. Uh, when you're not up in your room resting or eating or something like that, come on down and mingle. And then afterwards we have what we've dubbed the after effects. After the show is over for the night, we all hang around at either the hotel lobby or on the venue. And we sit down and everybody talks, has drinks and stuff like that. People play music, uh, all of that kind of thing. And I say, you miss that you watch a stream as soon as the guy's done speaking it's off and you can go watch the walking dead yeah. and uh, so we we want to build something that in a sense it's like saying i can read an ebook which there's nothing wrong with that i get a ton of ebooks i buy them that way for research sometimes but you can also sit in a big chair with an old book and turn the pages and read the book i think there's a certain intellectual amb- ambiance to reading a book as opposed to reading it on, on your computer or your tablet or your phone. Uh even though the information is the same, I think it's sometimes it's the setting. We forget it's like cooking. Adam, which would you rather have? You know that you or somebody else has spent an hour and a half to two hours preparing a handmade, homemade meal versus, hey, we're gonna throw this hungry man into the microwave and it'll be done <laughs> in two minutes. Right, uh, right, right. And, Still feeds you and gives you nutrition and whatever, but uh, which is better? And I like the I like the fellowship if you will, the family feeling of being together and learning things and rubbing shoulders. So that's why we've done the symposium. We traditionally, well, we've never streamed it, although we've done uh, we've done videos of some of the years.
1: Also, too, uh, some of the, the when you first did it, the first year, I mean, you had like some. Pretty well-known people, and, and not that you don't have well-known people yeah. now, but like um, you had Eric Von Danegan, Giorgio Tsoukalos, yeah. guys that were on the uh, – yeah, the, the whole cast pretty much. The ancient main aliens, of yeah. Ancient
2: aliens. And we even had Prometheus Productions was here filming an episode. They filmed the Von Danigan legacy episode of Ancient Aliens right at the Paradigm Symposium and in and around Minneapolis. And uh, uh, that was pretty cool. And they even mentioned us in in that, which I thought was really nice. Uh They mentioned uh, at the Paradigm Symposium, you know, is where we're filming this on the episode, and it was pretty cool. Um, So, uh, and that was our first year. And I got to tell you what, we had a big shoes to fill the second year. And uh, because when right. we went all out that first year with Eric Von Daniken, his first American appearance in over 12 years, um, even though he and Giorgio slipped in a couple in Boston the week before the Paradigm Symposium, uh, because he was here, um, which I flew him in on, and uh, um, which is fine. Uh, just saying, that first year was blowout. and uh, It wasn't as blowout, though, as I thought it would be. We thought we have an auditorium that seats 720 people. Surely there will be standing room only. And we sold about when all was said and done with day passes, we sold about 400 tickets. And, uh, uh, and so you look at that and you go, that's great. We didn't make a profit. We went into debt, but we put this thing on. And we said, we're going to do it next year. And the next year we had Scott Walter. Uh, we had uh, I'm trying to think of who some of the other guys we had in 2013. And Scott um,
1: Walter is back this year. He's back this year.
2: And, uh, uh, he had mentioned to me on the phone the other day. He lives locally here, by the way, in the Minneapolis area. Right. Yeah. We've had Scott
1: and, on the show. Thanks to you. Well, oh, well, thanks to Scott.
2: And, uh, um, but he told me, uh, he has done some major things with his, his, uh, Masonic degrees. He's all the way up to a 32nd degree. Um, he has gotten, gone through the Scottish Rite. Uh, he's a Knights Templar. And he said he has some information. That he has uncovered that is unbelievable, and he's gotten permission from some of the higher ups to be able to share some of this, and he's going to be talking. He didn't even tell me what it was over the phone.
1: Really? He
2: said, surprise you at the event, and so he will be here.
1: Now, does and he attend that lodge that we're going to be at? No, not the same lodge. He's been there That's many right. times. He's
2: spoken there um, at the lodge at lodge meetings, but uh, he's he's a member of another lodge in town, and. Okay. Uh, so he uh, uh he's going to be a uh, pretty amazing to listen to and yeah, as far as speakers i mean if you go to paradigm com, you go under the main header and there's that that string of uh a horizontal string of uh of all the speakers their pictures you just click on them and you can see all about them and we've got uh, 16 speakers this year 17 maybe with me and uh uh, it has been suggested in years past that maybe we cut down the number of speakers. Because we had, I think, 21 speakers the first year. Wow. And uh I said, you know, I want to offer variety and I want to fill the docket. And uh, uh we do everything uh right in the main auditorium. We don't have any breakout sessions. So we've got sixteen speakers over four days. And uh, plus uh Travis Walton is going to be here. Um uh, he's become a, a little more accessible than he used to be. He's doing more shows and events these days. But he is bringing in his new documentary called Travis. Yeah, I'm very
1: excited it, about that. Very excited about meeting him. That's I am, too. I remember watching that movie. God, it was 20 years ago. That yeah, Fire in the Sky. Yeah. Fire in the Sky. 1993 and, uh, is when that movie came out. Yeah. I was yeah. absolutely creeped out by that
2: movie when it came out. And uh, then to get to talk to the guy, I met him for the first time at a UFO conference in Taos, New Mexico, back in, I want to say it was 2012. And it might have been 2011. And uh, uh, he graciously accepted to be here. And uh, uh, everybody, by the way, who was part of the symposium for October that got postponed to May— is going to be here, with the exception of Barry Fitzgerald from Ghost Hunters International had a conflict in May and he cannot be here. And we've added a couple of speakers. We had a Jeffrey Doherty, uh, the Christian whistleblower, and uh, I'm trying to think if there's oh, and Scott Walter we added. So uh, it's still a pretty amazing show. You can go see all the speakers at the website.
1: Yeah, and there's going to be a lot of people there. That it's perfect for us going there because there's going to be a lot of people that we've had on the show. Of course, we've had you. Uh, we've had John on the show. Micah, uh, Peter Robbins has been You've on had, this show. You
2: have Carlson, haven't you?
1: No, I've not. I've not Rebel had him Carlson, on. My- uh, uh Laird Scranton's been on. Nick Redfern's been on this show several times. So there's a lot of people that uh that are that are there, going to be there that we've had on, and Scott Walter as well. Yep. So looking really looking forward to that and also getting to meet like new people and what we're gonna try to do when we're there and we're gonna try to record uh do some interviews while we're there as well. So I think that's gonna be gonna work really well. So uh Rob has a uh, He's not here with me right now, but he's got a portable mic that he's going to take around, and we're going to interview people there in the just like you know people that are not speaking. Yeah, try to do that as well. So
2: we're going to be doing live broadcasts for the Intrepid Radio Program uh, there as well uh, every night and uh, airing them on IPBN-FM dot com. Absolutely, Rocky Stucci, John Ward, and I have uh, the IPBN network, and um, so uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be a lot of fun uh it's going to be a little different it feels to me like it'll be a little different than other years in that we're a little more stripped down we're not at a big hotel we're at a gorgeous site uh we've got a couple of logistical things to work with uh the the, the fact that there's no restaurant or hotel right next door connected to the event venue um and uh, things like that so we're working through that and and finding ways to make that happen we're actually going to offer meals there that the the Masonic Lodge itself is going to cater meals uh, for lunches and dinners. Nice and uh, uh, you know simple stuff. They're going to do you know uh, uh, sa- sandwiches, meat and and uh, sandwiches and and all the fixings and you know you know things like potato salads and stuff like that. And then the banquet is uh, of course by ticket only. Uh, there's going to be the banquet and uh, the masked. Um, uh, uh, cocktail party prior to that. And, uh, that was an idea of John's, by the way. He says, we need to have a masked ball.
1: It's very eyes wide shut of him.
2: Yes, yes, very. And if you know John Ward, that's very fitting. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, uh, then, uh, afterwards, we're going to have a, uh, a very close one on one type of all the VIPs will be there. Uh, for one on one conversations and dialogue and questions, and not just your typical panel discussion and uh, that will be for everybody that's there. And we may throw in some other entertainment there. we'll have to see what's happening
1: and uh so uh that what about the what about the harp girls? are you gonna have the uh, harp twins there? no, sorry no uh, <laughs> if I had my drug though, so, I'd
2: have uh, lindsay oh, what's her name? she's the violinist, but she does this wild uh, uh um, I can't even think of her name now off the top of my head. Sorry, Lindsay, if you're listening. <laughs>
1: <What the laughs> well, heck? Scotty, I think we're going to have fun. I think it's going to be a. It's I gonna think be- it's going to be a real blast, and we're l- really looking forward to coming up there. And uh, you know, I think the main thing is to just enjoy it and and send it out with a bang.
2: Absolutely, and uh, so that's our intent to send it out with a bang. And if, if it should ever- hopefully not
1: a literal one, but you yeah, know.
2: yeah, not a literal one. Uh, uh but a good one
1: right well in the first part of this show i want to talk about some current event stuff with all right cuz uh, as i'm sure everybody knows by now you're the co-host on the rocky stucci show oh yeah so i think every day you guys are talking about current events and things that are going on in politics and uh maybe we could talk about some weird esoteric stuff in a little bit too
2: and i will tell you this uh the rocky stucci show if i can plug it for just a second absolutely uh, my partner, Rocky Stucci, um, he uh, uh, got an offer to do a political radio show, and he asked me if I would come along for the ride. And I said, sure. We started in January. Uh, we just got word this last week that we have – this is through we're, – we're through several different networks as well as uh I think – I don't want to misquote this, but I think there's nine terrestrial stations more in the south and the southeast that pick us up. Oh, the, wow. It has been said to us that we have over 700,000 live listeners every day. So it's uh, 4 to 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, and you can tune it in online if you're down. So I don't even know the radio stations, so I can't tell you the terrestrial ones, but you can tune it in. It's simply the Rocky Stucci Show, R O C C I S T U C C I dot com. Little,
1: little plug there. there oh, We just talked about, in the first part that we recorded yesterday, we talked about this whole bathroom controversy, and I kind of went over my thoughts on it, and kind of said that this would be the last that I was going to talk about it, but I thought I'd I'd ask you like, what your thoughts are on this uh, great bathroom controversy of 2016 that is going on right now.
2: Well, my first reaction is, if you got to go, you got to go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have been known to enter the women's room if I've needed to. (laughs) Um, Let's say, let's say I have to, let's say affectionately and delicately, I have to drop some Duke. And uh, and the male male heads are all full. Um, I will, I have been known.
1: I want to point out that you're the first guest to say drop a Duke on on this show. Congratulations.
2: Hashtag, Hashtag drop a Duke. Yeah. Um, I enter the, the, uh, um, the women's bathroom and, uh, I knock first and I call and I said, anybody in here? And nobody's there. And, and if I happen to still be enthroned when somebody comes in, I go, ah, uh, there's a man in here. Uh, emergency. Sorry. Sorry. And uh, they just laugh. Uh, so, uh, it's only happened a couple of times, but, uh, in context for the, the, the politics of it, yeah. um, I don't have any problem with anybody using any bathroom. Now, let's say at my house, men and women and children all use the same bathroom. But that's my family. So I have a problem with that. Um, However, when I go out into public um, with some of the things that go on in our society today, I have a problem with somebody just being able to say I'm transgender and I want to use the women's bathroom. Uh, because I believe I'm another sex. Now, here's the thing. Uh, pardon me, anybody out there that's listening. I do not want to offend political sensitivity, sensibilities, and I do not want wish to offend anybody. But let me say a word about offense. I, I have a firm belief that I can't be offended. You know why, Adam? Because I choose not to be offended. Uh, if somebody wants to say something and try to offend me, I'm like, you know, that's on you, buddy. Uh, yeah. I can make a choice to be offended or choose not to be offended. So offense in this country is overblown with political correctness, and oh, I'm so offended because you said this or did that or that. It's like, you know, grow up. Uh, life, you're going to get offended all through your life unless you choose not to be offended. I don't choose to be a victim of any kind, so you can't offend me. Very little that offends me. Um, So, you know, I might be offended by, I don't know, never mind. Uh, But I see this as a a politically correct move. It's a social engineering move. It's being done to raise political awareness rather than just say, hey, we really are sensitive to this person who thinks he's a, he's a woman when, he's, when he was born a man um, and uh, may have gone through the surgery and has changed all the externals and probably somebody who could not maintain estrogen levels or being a woman if he did not have to take manufactured pharmaceuticals to do that, to accomplish that and put him on a stranded island, what's he going to do? He's going to get flabby boobs and bristly stubble on his chin. Um, and you know what, that's what happens when you medically alter something, surgically alter something to me. Um, my personal opinion, somebody who has those issues is somebody who has emotional initial issues they need to deal with. Um, I would hate to know of people that say I have this issue where I think I'm the opposite sex and they lop off organs and they stitch up things and they manufacture plastic surgery and they take drugs only to find out a few years down the road. Uh, I just cut all my junk off. I'm still yeah. a little guy. Um, when it comes down to it. So there's a whole question of that. And I'm going to get all kinds of people rankled that would say, no, it's real. And you got to really, no, I don't, I don't have to because, um, uh, if this is, I have no problem with with somebody who says they want to be gay or lesbian. it's to, You know what? If that's what you are, that's what you are. Um, but when you start tampering with things like bathrooms, to make politi- a political issue out of it, a social engineering issue out of it, that is where I find it becoming a problem. You know what? If you're transgendered and you used to be a guy and you're now a woman, um, you're a woman to you, You're not a woman to else. And something that bothers me is that all the people who are in that community wants to force the rest of the world to be sensitive and tolerant to them. Yet if it comes out with the belief that says, I do not believe that's right. I don't think you should do that. And I don't think we should give you special privilege in a bathroom where my little girls
1: go to the bathroom. Where's the tolerance for that belief? Well, I want to say this and, and here's, here's a couple of elements here. One is exactly what you're saying. I mean, how far do we push the definition of psychosis? What do we? I mean, are we just going to keep going until just everything is is acceptable? Right. I mean, is is is? I mean, this sounds real cliche, but like, is sex with animals going to be acceptable? Is is that going to be? You in, know, in how far? How far do you, far do you me, take I, it? I guess is pedophilia going to become acceptable? Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, how far? How far do you actually? Take this till like oh whoa wait that's too far, uh, but number two at the same time uh, emphasis on number two from your your, uh, your earlier uh, comment there. Um, you know at the same time I, I hear what you're saying about this like raise they're trying to raise the social awareness, but everything that I see is that it's the other side mostly these state legislatures that have just all of a sudden decided to do this. I don't think any of this came first from Adam, the you know LGBT it, community or Q, whatever they're I, called now. I think that that was at the
2: foundation. There was a lobby of some kind. Yeah. Of push. Even if it was only one or two people, somebody pushed the issue with somebody. And what I see happening is everybody in legislation is falling lockstep because of the political correctness cancer in this country that says if you disagree with them in public you are either racist, you're bigoted, you're hateful, you're whatever. And, uh, that to me is the bigger problem. It's that you cannot state, I don't like this and I will resist it without being labeled something from the politically correct progressive crowd. Right. And I think this is where legislators, um, are, if we're all concerned, let's just put it tactlessly. They're ballless. Um, they don't stand up. To something because they believe in it they capitulate to something so they aren't called the politically uh, the, the name by the politically correct crowd oh you're bigoted
1: well i want uh, to say this too and, and you haven't heard what we talked about yesterday if, if, if when we get this posted you can go back and listen to it but what it kind of came down to for me eventually was i read an article about this uh, little town in alabama that's kind of just a few miles away from birmingham And they were actually considering fining people $500 and possibly putting them in in jail for six months for... Uh, Using the wrong bathroom, the wrong sex using the wrong bathroom. And I thought to, and I really think to myself, I think that that's, that's kind of key where when you have these two different groups that throw these things, like even the social justice people and then the people on the other side of the kind of more the conservative evangelical Christian side, you, you end up getting these rules that the government just makes more and more rules and laws that first of all, we can't possibly enforce, but are going to put more people in jail. And that's you know, a little worrisome to me.
2: You know, for me, um, I would see it as a thing where if I saw somebody uh, who is transgendered using a bathroom, and there's not a law about it. I'd probably go, hey, come on, you got to get out of there. Go use the men's room. Well, I'm not really a man anymore. I'm a woman. I'm like, look, I'm not here to discuss your your, uh, your sexual pro- proclivities or, your, or your, your emotional issues. I'm here to tell you, you can't use the woman's room. Use the men's room. Please, just buck up. Buck up and use the men's room. You did it for 40 years of your life before you had your surgery. Go use the men's room. Jesus Christ.
1: But I don't think the government, be it local, state, or federal, should have anything to do with that. Because that's just increasing more and more laws and increasing more and more
2: funds and revenue for the state. Where the government has to step into that to some extent is to say – say you're at a, a, a target store or a Walmart store or some kind of public place and you aren't are, are is the store not tacitly responsible for things that happen and if somebody says there is a man dressed like a woman in the woman's room and my little girl was in there, I am incensed by this. get him out of there, please um, Is that person being insensitive or is that person saying... I don't think that guy should be in there. Why isn't that person's sensitivities being as tolerated as the sensitivities from the other side? I think the transgendered people need to be sensitive to the fact that there are people who don't like that, and so go use the goddamn men's room.
1: Yeah, and and, and you know what, Scotty, I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying. I just, I just look at this and I think it's another. It's, it's there's an it's an increase. There's an increase in government here. Yeah, in, uh, an in increase into people's lives into into privacy that just doesn't need to happen. I, I and, could that Maybe people to, need to work on this without involving the government. Work on it socially instead of instead of politically. Do you, you, you understand know, what I'm saying with that? I do. Dan
2: Adson, yeah. who is going to be one of our speakers at the symposium, good friend of mine for 35 years. <laughs> he's publisher of all the Star Trek magazines and the Star Wars and Lucasfilm and all of that. And uh, um, that's who an interesting guy, uh, a very interesting Uh, man. And we were talking online about this, just quipping a little bit about the, about something that sounds like a rabbit trail here, but it's really not. I'm going to make a point here is uh, I had mentioned if there was one person that I would like to meet out of history, I said, I had heard stories of Thomas Jefferson at his home in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he had at Monticello, where he, would just have people would just stop in. Of course, there were no phones, things like that. People would just stop in to meet the the former president and he'd entertain them, be hospitable. He'd give them tea and sometimes give them the little cottage out back and, uh, uh to sleep in for a few days. Uh, I said, I would love to go back in time and ride a horse up to the doors of Monticello and be able to talk and have a conversation with Thomas Jefferson, have coffee with him, uh, uh, show him things, show him how things turned out, things that he wrote about, and so on. That leads me to this question, and I was fantasizing about that, and Dan and I were fantasizing a bit back and forth, what a great screenplay that would make, or
1: so on and so forth. You get to meet Sally Hemings and all that. yeah, children.
2: Yeah, see what's really going on. <laughs> uh, how much of that's politically manipulated, and how much yeah. of it's not, and so on. Although DNA doesn't lie. Um, so, I bring I bring up that example to say, I wonder what it would be like to sit with Thomas Jefferson and say, did you realize Did you realize how many people have tried to make the federal government do things that it was never intended to do by the Constitution? Uh, all the things that the federal government is taking on itself, yeah. all, how big it's become. And if I brought up the issue of uh, – now, uh, Mr. President, let me ask you. If a man – today in 1787 or whatever it would be, um, came up to your door and said, he's dressed like a woman, and said, I believe I'm a woman. Can I use your woman's room? <laughs> Which he didn't have, of course. Uh, what would you think if I told you, Mr. President, that this is something that's being that's being tossed around as political law, and the federal government is going to start getting involved in it? the man would probably be incensed at that notion, that the federal government would get involved in that kind of issue. That's not a federal government's place. That is, if anything, it's on a state level or a local municipal level. Uh, So when I see all this social engineering being brought into, boy, they want to make it federal law, the whole thing of gay marriage and so on. Marriage shouldn't be an issue with the federal government of any kind marriage between a man and a woman should not be a federal issue. That's I agree. not what the federal government is there to do. I agree. Uh, so, uh, government, uh, local governments is where you take care of marriage. As a matter of fact, even back in the day, somebody in my own family tree, a woman named Rachel Donnelly was married to, uh, one of my ancestors, a guy named Louis Robards. That was our original name here, by the way, when, my family came over from Wales in 1710. They were the Robards, and it got turned to Roberts' uh, clerical stuff later on. But Captain Lewis Robards was married to Rachel Donnelly. She left him. No, well, they were married in Virginia, and they moved to Mercer County, Kentucky. And there she met a brash young Kentuckian by the name of Andrew Jackson. And she ended up leaving Lewis Robards and marrying and divorcing him in Kentucky and marrying. Uh, Andrew Jackson, who went on to become president of the United States.
1: Wait a minute! So you're saying that you're related to Rachel Donaldson?
2: Yes. Uh, really? She is. She was married to my. I think it'd be like eighth generation back. Really. And uh, so the 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 crux of this though is that this was the big scandal in Andrew Jackson's White House was that he was his wife was a bigamist because the law back then said you could only be divorced in the same state in which you were married. And that was Virginia law. So while Kentucky law allowed her to be divorced, Virginia law did not. And so she was a bigamist. So she had to redo the whole divorce thing in Virginia as well, years after the fact. And it became a scandal in this White House. These are state's laws. The federal government does not get involved. Why should then the federal government be involved in gay marriage? Not that I'm insensitive to gay marriage. I think if anybody wants to marry anybody, it's their business. It's not mine. And it's certainly not the business of the federal government.
1: I agree, as long as the church is not forced to do it. Right, exactly. That's my caveat on it. And the church should not
2: be forced to marry. They should not be, absolutely. Uh, a couple who owns a bake shop should not be forced to, make a cake for somebody who's gay if they don't think that's right. They bring their own sensibilities to their business. You know what the gay couple can do? Go to the next Baker. Um, And you you can thumb your nose, kick the dirt off your heels, and flip the bird at the people who don't believe that all you want. And uh, you wouldn't make a cake for a gay person. And we hate you. Well, where's the tolerance then? Why doesn't the gay community say, hey everybody, shut up! These people don't believe the same thing. We don't need to force them to believe that. They're not out being bigoted against gays. They just refuse to do service for something that they believe is wrong by their religious affiliation. That's not the same as putting on a white robe and a white hood and lynching somebody.
1: I I think you've got two groups here in this debate, and I'm going to say this. It really is almost two ideological extremes. And both extremes feel like they're being persecuted
2: yeah, by the other. I think so. And I think everybody needs to just back off and shut up. <laughs> just do what makes you happy. And if somebody doesn't make you happy, go to the next one that does. You know what? There's more than one bakery in the world. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. more than one toilet in the world. Uh, make it into a political issue, and you're going to raise problems.
1: Hey, you can go to Target though. So that's right. You can go to Target and go poop. And for the life of me, I can't. I I don't understand why Target decided to take up that cause. I don't know what. Um, uh, I don't even understand.
2: It's one of two things: there is either somebody in the hierarchy at Target that is either part of that community or very sensitive to that community, and it became an issue within their board meetings, uh, or. Um, they simply don't want to lose that clientele because, you know what, That's that'll be the next thing. If Target came out and said, well, we're not going to do this, you got to use the men's bathroom or the women's bathroom. If you're transgender, we're not going to cater to that. You know what they do? They have the LGBT uh, community up in arms and boycotting them next. I believe it was probably a business decision, not a decision of what was right or wrong. And uh, or what they believed in, belief went out the window. The only belief for Target was we need to cater to our clients and to our customers. So, and well, since
0: yeah,
1: since we brought up Andrew Jackson, yeah, what do you think about the change in the uh, the announcement? They're going to change the twenty dollar bill.
2: You know, Andrew Jackson was a bit of a scoundrel, whatever. Uh, he's been on the money. You know what? Paper money's not worth anything anyway. <laughs> I almost look at it that way. Yeah. I don't care. Um I think Harriet Tubman is a fine choice. I agree. Uh, we had Susan B. Anthony. I didn't even know who she was when they when she first came out. I loved it when they had the way gold dollars. I thought those were very cool. Or some people might know her as uh 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 Sacagawea, um or Sacagawea, who was the the Native American woman who aided the Lewis and Clark expeditions. And uh, she was on the dollar, and I thought, how cool is that? And I got no problem with Harriet Tubman. The only problem I have with anybody that's put on money, if it's politically motivated. It's motivated to appease one group. And uh, I would dare say, taking all passion and emotion out of it, folks, just looking at it as a raw situation— saying, I'm pretty sure Harry Tublin made the, made the $20 bill stemming out of all the racial stuff that's been going on for the last few years. Um, and stemming out of the, the Black Lives Matter movement. There's yeah. my small child background worshipping me at my feet. Um, <laughs> and then moving on. And uh, uh, so hold on one second. I'm on radio. I don't know if anybody knows my baby daughter is outside the house.
1: So I think somebody will notice here very quick. Uh, Which by the way, Scotty, uh you where we're I'm speaking to you from right down the street from the home of Andrew Jackson. Oh, you are? Because I live yeah I, uh, I'm in a part of Nashville called Hermitage and Hermitage the Hermitage is where he was where he lived, yep. That's a that gorgeous tree lined
2: lane that goes up to the front yep. doors of the Pillar Mansion. Very cool place.
1: Yeah, if you guys if you ever come down here, I'm gonna take you there. So
2: you know, somewhere you ought to go is if you ever get a chance. It sounds such like such an odd place to go, Lynchburg, Virginia. See, I've been I've been there. Have you been there? Did you go to Thomas Jefferson's home there?
1: Uh, you know, I've been, I've been to Monticello, but it's been a long time. Well, Monticello is about an hour and a half from there.
2: Uh, but if you're in Lynchburg. I, I lived there for two years, and I didn't even know the history. It was back in the early nineteen eighties. I was art director of a little um, uh, graphic arts shop, and uh, I didn't know my history very well as well as I do now. Back then, I didn't know that Jefferson, to get away from Monticello, built built a mini Monticello in Lynchburg.
1: I didn't know that either. And it's
2: right in—I swear to God—it's in the residential district. You can—I went to my friend's house; they were two blocks away. From Thomas Jefferson's Mini Monticello, um, Poplar Poplar Forest, it's called, and uh, what a neat place it sits on a couple of acres, and it's like a mini version of Monticello, and uh, a unique house. You can also go a twenty-minute drive from Lynchburg, and you're at Appomattox Courthouse.
1: Yeah, we went there a few years ago. What a about great four years ago it hasn't changed in a hundred and fifty years. Yep, they restored what, a lot of it
2: where uh, the Civil War was ended, where uh, Robert E. Lee signed in that little living room, that little parlor, and the furniture is still there even. Uh, and he signed uh, the surrender of the South to uh, Ulysses S. Grant.
1: So now, all these to, places, to, to all, to all you Yankees up there. In, all uh, you Yankees up there. <laughs> I want to ask you uh, just real quick about, you know, Trump – what do you foresee happening with the convention? And I think Trump California got pretty ugly over the weekend. Uh, yeah, it did.
2: Yeah, there were literally hundreds of people out for that, um, not thousands, not tens of thousands. Um, California getting ugly. Here they are protesting a man that they, they say they're protesting against Donald Trump because they claim he is bigoted and he's racist and all. That. And what's going on? They're destroying cop cars. They're lighting fires. They're looting stores. Um, yeah. Wow, you just won me over. Um, that to me is antithetical to whatever the movement says they're doing there. Now, I haven't heard anything about it since it happened. I haven't seen any of the organizers come out. Now, maybe they did. I didn't see it. Come out and decry those actions. Um, I saw a protest, and people are protesting, and it's like – I, I look at the uh, – remember the protest in Chicago outside the Donald Trump rally in Chicago a few weeks back? Yes. And uh, that
1: yeah, – Well, we mar- talked about that the last time I had you on back in March.
2: I remember seeing reporters asking some of the protesters, why are you here? What are you protesting? We're protesting Donald Trump and the fact that he's racist and bigoted. Well, well what, what do you find about him about those things? What What is it exactly that you find? The man on the street reporter would ask. And they'd say – And it was almost scripted because you heard it from several different people said the same thing. Um, I don't want to talk about that right now. I'm just here to protest. And (laughs) it it was scripted. You know, it was scripted because they were hired to be there. Same thing in California. There was an ad in Rocky Stucci showed this, uh, talked about this on, on the Rocky Stucci show. The fact that there was a something that said 10 to $12 per hour will be paid to any protester that comes out to the anti Donald Trump rally in California. Wow. So it's not people protesting. You might have had a handful of people that don't like them and they could talk about why they don't like them. Beyond that, no. And, uh, uh, the thing that I have a problem with, and Rocky and I talk about this a lot, is what I call media malfeasance or media malpractice. And that is the coronating of certain candidates or people and the, um, uh, uh, uh deleterious news about somebody else without giving the whole story. If you look at any news story about Donald Trump that talks about him, oh, he was going to build a wall. Well, so what? Mexico's got a wall of their own. But it's to keep people from coming in, not to keep them from going out.
1: Um, Border with Guatemala. And I
2: never see anybody Donald Trump says, he says, I'll have Mexico. We're going to build a wall and Mexico's going to pay for it. And But nobody digs into that. I've never heard anybody ask him, how are you going to do that? I know how he's going to do that. He's going to renegotiate trade deals with Mexico. Mexico's going to end up paying for that. Not, oh, well, here's the bill and you, you guys will pay it in 30 days. It's not that. It's going to come out of the trade situation we have with Mexico and many other things. Um uh, I look at Donald Trump and I see somebody who has said things for the purpose of saying really deliberately, I think, saying some very incendiary things. But that's not because there isn't some fact behind it and something that needs to be looked at. It's like uh, what happened in, right after Brussels, the attacks in Brussels. Every candidate that disagreed with Donald Trump saying we should put a temporary moratorium on letting Muslims into the country until we can figure out how to vet better who is – who is radicalized and who is not, which you don't even hear that much told in the news when that's repeated. Uh, there's a whole theory, political theory behind that uh, for for uh, uh, immigration and refugees. All the candidates came up and mouthed exactly what Donald Trump was saying without giving him any credit, of course. And I found that very interesting that they all said, well, there really should be you know, some moratorium on bringing Muslims into the country. Um, and so on and so forth. And it's not religious discrimination. It's not. When you have, when you take uh, Islam in general, Islam is a way of life. It's a, I think I may have used this illustration with you before. Take two big circles and draw them on a piece of paper. Call one of them Islam, and under the other one put Christianity or Western belief or whatever you want to put in there. In Western belief or Christianity, the circle is labeled life. And inside the circle, you start making all kinds of dots. This one is family. This one is religion. This one is church. This one's business. This one's money. This one's so on and so forth. Go over to the the circle that's Islam. The circle is not life. The circle is called Islam or religion. Within religion, the little dots are labeled life, family, everything else in life, life. In Islam, the religion comprises the whole picture of what life is supposed to be. In Western belief or Christianity or other religions you can plug in there, life is the big circle and religion becomes a part of what you you do in life, not life itself. So when you have this kind of, and that's, that's a real rudimentary way to look at this, but when you have Islam that believes life, is religion, the religion. And this is what they are taught from childhood up. You are going to have, in that circle, people who believe that whatever Islam tells you you have to do, you have to do, whether you agree with it or not. It's like papal edicts in Catholicism. Um, and there's many people who rebel against that. But Islam worldwide is the life to Islamic culture. And so Islam becomes less of a religion and more of a cultural thing. So when you say, Donald Trump says, we need to put a temporary moratorium on immigrants and refugees that are Islamic, he is not pointing out religion. He is pointing out way of life, politics, family, religion, life itself, because you cannot tell by looking at somebody – whether or not they are radicalized. But it has been said and documented. You, you look, I can give you some names to go look up and some of the p- things these people write about. Uh, Michael uh, Cutler is one of them. Uh, but you look at immigration coming in and you have to say, there's no way to divide the radicals away from the, the, the moderates because life is the religion. And so it has been said that one in 50 Immigrants coming into this country are radicalized.
1: But now, there are people. Yeah. There are people in the Islamic world that that do do what you said that the uh, people in the Western world do. I mean, they do put their religion put people, in, in, in into the box. But the thing is, is that and it seems to me more and more. And we're about to have a, a guest on that's going to talk about this next week. Uh, it seems that more and more is that what they're doing. They're doing that in spite of. What is even mainstream Islam?
2: Right. Well, uh, you know, I know um, Muslims here locally. I know Muslims over in Egypt. Right. And I have very good friends, and some of them are PhDs. They're scientists. I may have told you this this little story before, but I remember sitting with uh, with one. He's uh, uh, in the government, part of the Ministry of Antiquities, and we sat down and and we were talking, and he had overheard me say to somebody. We were just casually talking, and I made the statement, oh, I lost my faith a long time ago. Uh, and we were sitting on the boat, but what I mean, what a picture. We're going uh, up the Nile, south, which is up the Nile, uh, toward Aswan, and we're sitting on the boat, and he comes to me, and he says, we're sitting at the table having coffee on the, on the upper deck. And he says, Scotty, he says, you said something that uh, I want to ask you about. He says, you talked about losing your faith. Could you talk about this with me? And I said sure, and uh, so we talked about all of that. And uh, I asked him in in the process of asking those questions or talking back and forth. I asked him. I said, "Now you're a scientist, you're an archaeologist, you are a um um um, what was the word I used? Uh, an academician." And I said, "You are also a Muslim." I said, "What would you do as a Muslim?" If you scientifically or archaeologically find something that contradicts something you may have learned within your religion. And he gave me the response that I've seen from other Muslim friends that are in similar situations that I've talked to. And his eyebrows kind of go up and his eyes close kind of and eyebrows go up and his shoulders come up and his hands go out. And he kind of goes, well, he says, Scotty, he says, my science is here and my religion Is over here, and he says I do not let them mix. And uh, he says I believe what I believe by my religion. He says, but I believe what I believe by my science, even if they may contradict. And uh, but none of these guys are militants. None of these guys are radicals.
1: Yeah, it's it's like you have to have the conception. It's like there's two different conceptions almost between. What we see in, in the kind of the Western Christian West and the Muslim East, like the conceptions, I- I- even between languages can be different. So like it, it, it's like the conception is completely different that they have for it as we do over here.
2: Right. And and that's what yeah. we don't realize is uh, the their concept of everything is a completely different culture. We're, and there to a certain extent we have to be tolerant of that but you can't be tolerant of that when around the world the religion which is different than saying christianity or buddhism or whatever it might be the religion that is most responsible for terrorism is a religion that is life itself that is in, within the muslim community and the problem with that is You have to be discriminatory, especially when it comes to security.
1: Now, I think the world is more and more turning against them. It's things are getting real ugly. And as far as Trump goes with concerns, I'll say this as far as that goes is like, I don't see how we're going to to enforce that. A lot of people on Facebook came out with this whole thing when Trump first made those statements. Yeah. A lot of people came out and said that Carter you know he had uh, restricted iranians from coming over here well yeah and my point to people was well that was easy because all they had you know it was people coming over here with an iranian passport they were right. citizens of a country not members of a religion
2: right now the and and you got to keep in mind when we say we we put it into this quaint little category of members of a religion uh, and we I even say that it's so easy to say that but what we're forgetting is that culturally that religion is more than a religion. They can't just go. I'm going to jump ship and be Christian. They can't do that. There are certain Muslim countries where you can, uh, no. where there's a lot of freedom in that. There are can't other do that Muslims
7: in
1: Saudi Arabia, can you? Can't do that in Saudi Arabia. Nope. Can't do that in Syria. Our, our good buddies
2: over there. And so, and what we have to keep in mind is when we talk about this stuff, and any kind of temporary moratorium on on Islam. And Muslims coming to the country, we're not talking about their religion. We're talking about their cultural way of life because the religion is the whole life, and that includes their politics. That includes their political correctness. That includes what they are and are not tolerant of uh, because it's governed by the religion, which the religion itself is the culture, is the governing system, is the politics in many Islamic countries. And so Um, This is what you have to deal with. And it's like, folks, you know, shut up. Uh, Look at reality. The reality is this is what you have to do. And this is what the federal government is responsible for doing in the United States is protecting our borders, protecting its citizenry. And uh, you can't just say, well, we've got to be tolerant of their religion and let them. It's not about religion. It's about the culture of the people who claim the religion, and uh, because that religion is all-encompassing, so how do you divide that out? It creates it creates a quagmire. Well, it's really not a quagmire at all. It's like I've said: if 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 uh, redheaded, bearded Scottish men wearing kilts were responsible for terrorism, and they were all Catholic, uh, could you say? I have to well that's different it's a different illustration. I'm sorry, I used that when I was talking about uh, uh, the Trayvon Martin case. i said if if, if red headed bearded kilted Scotsmen were known for robbing houses in the middle of the night and you saw a red headed bearded Scotsman in a kilt standing on your front lawn at two thirty in the morning, would you call the police, or would you be afraid?
1: Uh, yes, because they've said... that. freak territory. me out a little bit. It's not something so, you see every day. You get the point I was trying. <laughs> I want to ask you an archaeological question. All right. And I was hoping to get John's feedback on this, but alas, to no avail. And I also wanted to point out that as soon as John got to Minneapolis, Prince died, and then you got pink eye. Man, what's with that? Yeah, I know. What is, what, what is up with that? I would like to know, sincerely. <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's a conspiracy. Uh, I wanted to ask you about David Roll. Okay. Yeah, you, know, you got this movie, this guy actually that lives up there where you are. Uh, what is this? Patterns of Evidence about yes. uh, the, uh, the, guy the, that attends, the Exodus. Uh,
2: um, I'm, I'm trying to think of his name, Tim. But I can't think of his last name. He, he attends uh, Grace Church um, in uh, the Minneapolis, one of the Minneapolis suburbs. It's a big... Uh, Kind of non-denominational church.
1: So it's a. a, I I have actually bought that, and actually, it's a very, uh, it's a very good documentary. uh, You know, it it. it brings a lot of. uh, It it makes sense, but you've written. You you and John have written. You you you, would have been one of my
2: former professors, Doctor Zayla was actually Mm -hmm. part of that documentary.
1: Yep, and actually, I, I I saw. Yeah, I know that that's the guy that you talked about before. Yeah, Uh, but I want to ask you about. Because you've written about the Exodus, you and John have, even though you guys disagree on who Moses was. We do. But uh, what do you think of David Roll, his, uh, his, chronolo- his, his his new chronology? Because with that chronology, he seems to put a lot of pieces together in that film. Well, here's the problem. When you create
2: your own chronology of the Egyptian kings to match your theories, you can come up with almost anything. Now, David Roll is a PhD. He's well-researched. I respect David Roll. I respect a lot of his work. I happen to disagree with him on his theory of Moses. And I disagree with his chronology of the Egyptian kings. There are already five chronologies of the Egyptian kings out there. He created a sixth. The accepted one that John and I used was the Oxford University uh, chronology of the Egyptian kings. We went by the more accepted one. That doesn't mean they're not questions. And the reason there are differences in all of these chronologies is that some there are some interpretations of did this Pharaoh actually reign for 20 years or 22 years? Did he was he co-regent with this Pharaoh? And they mentioned him without mentioning the co-regent and therefore his reign is 40 years instead of 30. And so they shift all over the place and uh, uh that's where some of the difficulty comes in is some of those questions are still unanswered out there um david roll has a different theory for moses than i do uh actually uh i know david well or david roll well and i've talked to him and i and i certainly I, I want to say not being political or anything i respect david roll and i respect his work um but i disagree with him on these points no. uh you, just because you're a phd and you're You've written a lot of cool stuff uh, on biblical history doesn't mean you're right about everything. And I don't think he's right. Now, even my own theory, I will say, I believe I'm right about this, but I say there is room for improvement, there's room for shadow of doubt, because I can't prove my theory. I can only circumstantially prove my theory. And I do that using the you know the accepted chronology of the kings, the accepted history. And David Roll has created his own. Uh, you know, it's very convenient when you can say, I have done my research and I've recreated the chronology of the kings and it fits my theory on Moses. And you, that, that's great. If I could do that, there'd be no question about anything I do. Um, so um, I like Shimka Yakubovich. He's got he hasn't created a chronology of the kings. But he's got theories about Moses that differ a bit from mine, but fall into the same basic time period. But he uses a different chronology of the kings. And uh, so, you know, he, he thinks Moses lived in and around 1500 BC when the Exodus took place. I believe Moses was 1446, 50 years later was when the Exodus took place. And I have my circumstantial reasons for establishing that. I believe he was born in 1526 B.C. I use what I do. I'm not a biblical minimalist by any means, nor am I saying you have to believe everything by faith as you read it in the Bible. But I believe the Bible's book of faith, when people say, oh, you can't trust that history, it came out of the Bible. That's a book of faith. Well, I say, shut up. It's also (laughs) a historical book.
1: You've said that a lot tonight.
2: It's just just become my... I... Lately, I look at people, I just want to go, just shut up, <laughs> you know, and uh, because the Bible itself is an historical book that is wrapped into books of faith. Now, look at Mary, Queen of Scots. Look at Elizabeth I of England. Look at Henry VIII. Look at all the laws and all the government that was established on the basis of their Catholicism or their Protestantism. They ruled from a point of faith, whether they believed it or not, and they made laws. And you read history of those eras; it's, it's absolutely drenched with issues of faith, policy, laws, and so on. The Bible is no different. It's a book of laws that contains history. And just because it's a book of faith does not render the history invalid. Uh, I agree. And I don't think that there are guys that wrote inaccurate history to try to stretch it to fit the Bible or, or their religious teachings. They were saying, here's what happened, here's the history, but this is what we believe in and out of history, all through history, wrapped through, ribboned in and out of real history. They weren't there to reestablish history to try to make a case for their faith. They were saying, history is part of our faith. And so when I look at this, I went to to establish my view of who Moses was. I went to a biblical verse in the book of First Kings six, chapter six, verse one. It says, "Solomon, the son of David, when he was king, he built the first temple in Jerusalem. And on the day he dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, it was the four hundred and eightieth year since the Exodus took place."
1: Now, that's no, that's, nice that's mentioned, and that's mentioned in that movie too. Yeah,
2: it is. Now, Temple 1 in Jerusalem has been established to have been built mid-10th century BCE, right around 966 BC, give or take a few years in either, not even a decade, three to seven years in either direction. So if the median date is 966 BC for the establishment of Temple 1, and the Exodus took place 480 years thereabouts, because it's a round number. Uh, you don't know if it's taking the 12 tribes of Israel, you know, times, uh, uh, what is that? 12 times 12 is uh, 144. 144. Uh, 480 is divisive by 12. Uh, I think it's 12 times 40. And so 40 being the, the, the number of judgment in Jewish literature, 12 being the number of Jewish tribes, uh, or Israelite tribes. Is it that kind of number that they used to establish? We don't know for sure. And it was also rewritten in the 400s BC when Jewish rabbis, after the Babylonian captivity, went back and they rebuilt the temple, and they went to the library at Alexandria in Egypt. And under the permission of Pharaoh Ptolemy II, the Grecian Greco-Roman pharaoh of Egypt, they got permission to go in and look at all the old books and the old scrolls and reconstruct the Old Testament as we know it today. And what they wrote in Greek, because that was the language of commerce, they wrote the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. It is the Old Testament that's in your Bible today is the Septuagint translated into English. And so um, what you've got here are lots of questions about writing historicity did they have everything accurate and so on but what you do have is archaeological evidence that states temple one was built around 966 bc and if the bible has accurate history at all and they've recorded that for the purpose of their people and said we're building this temple it's now 480 years since you were led out of egypt by moses and the Great Exodus. If that's an accurate date, that gives you a date of around 1445, 1446 BC as the date of the Exodus. And if Moses was indeed 80 years old at the year of the Exodus, as the Bible says he was, you go back 80 years and you get 1526 as the year of his birth. And who was on the throne? Tutmosis I was on the throne in 1526. He had a daughter who bore the Egyptian royal title of. Pharaoh's daughter. It was his daughter, Matkari. Matkari, when she took the throne and became the female Pharaoh of Egypt 20-some, almost 40 years later, uh, no, I'm sorry, 20-some years later, she took on the name Hatshepsut. And this is the woman that I believe found Moses in the Nile back in 1526 when she was
1: 7 to 10 years old. Like there's a famous temple there in Egypt that is her temple, right? Yeah, the Hatshepsut uh, temple,
2: temple yeah. of Jeshur uh, uh, Jeshuru Dier el Bahre. Right there, it's on the east side of the Theban mountains. Where if you go to the west side, you've got the Valley of the Kings in there. So it's on the east side of the the big craggy rocks, and uh, it faces east. and And uh, I've been there several times. It's a, a magnificent place, and uh, I believe it was her grand vizier by a man by the name of Senenmut who was Moses of the Bible. And everything fits at least circumstantially. His birth, the Egyptian records say he was born to commoners. If he was born to slaves, would they say he was born to slaves? Or would they say commoners? Were the Israelites actually all slaves or were they common uh, indentured workers? Were they, were they laborers who lived in the country? They were there ingrained in the society for so many years. That they became this working class. After the grandfather of Hatshepsut, Amos the first ousted the Hyksos, who were the Middle Eastern peoples who for 800 years had established themselves in the Delta Nile, Nile Delta region in Egypt, and they took over the Northern throne for 108 years. They were known as the Hyksos, the shepherding kings. And when Amos the first drove them out, he put into servitude all the remnant of the Hyksos people so they would not regather, reform, and try to take the northern kingdom away again. And what do you have in the book of Genesis? You've got those verses and Exodus. You've got those verses that say, after the death of Joseph, uh, who was patriarch of Israel, uh, who I believe reigned as a grand vizier during the Hyksos period. It says, after his death and after the death of all his brothers and a generation had passed, it says a new pharaoh came to the throne and he said, let us put the Israelites into bondage lest they rejoin our enemies and take our country away from us again.
1: See, I always wondered about that, Scotty, the connection to the Hyksos, because they talk about the Hyksos as being from West Asia, and they would have been from around that area of Syria and Palestine. The Hyksos were, were known as the shepherding peoples. Or yeah, and I, I was always wondering, curious about that, whether there was a connection to them and to the Hebrews. I mean, it would almost make sense that there would be. Uh, l- listen to this. In the book of Genesis, you, you remember the story of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Right. He had
2: twelve brothers They all represent the tribes of Israel. Israel was their father, Jacob. And, uh, uh, they, uh, they, they kidnap their brother Joseph because they're jealous of him and they sell him into slavery. And Joseph goes to, ends up in Egypt as a slave. And then his rise to power is chronicled in the book of Genesis. And, uh, you know, he does, he interprets dreams for the Pharaoh from prison. Pharaoh elevates him and he eventually elevates him to a position where he says, you will have everything in Egypt save the throne itself. So he was a grand vizier. A grand vizier, by definition, was Pharaoh in the place of Pharaoh. And so he takes the position. Then we know the story where all his brothers come. They don't recognize him. And uh, they're coming to to find grazing land in the Delta area and move their family there from the Canaanite region. They're just a family tribe, the tribe of Israel. And uh, Joseph eventually reveals himself and so on. And now when Joseph is counseling with his brothers and saying, I'm going to give you this, this, this land of Goshen. It's, it's to the to the east of the Cairo area in the Delta region. He says, I'm going to give you this land. But when you come to Pharaoh, he says, here's what I want you to tell him. Now, this is in the biblical account. It's And I never quite understood this until I started putting all these pieces together, historically. He said, when you come to Pharaoh, he says, tell him, And he asks what your profession is. Tell him that you are shepherds and that you've been shepherds from the days of your youth because the Egyptians hate shepherds. And I thought, why is he telling them to tell tell the Pharaoh your shepherds? Because they hate them. They hate you guys. What's that good is that going to do for them? Until you look at history and say the Hyksos kings were known as the shepherding kings because the He rose out of the shepherding peoples that for hundreds of years had been settling in the Nile Delta and took over in the cities and the civic city and eventually took over the northern throne. They were known as the shepherding kings. And the Egyptians, the real Egyptians to the south in Thebes, which is current day Luxor, hated the Hyksos. They hated anything to do with shepherds because of the Hyksos. And so Joseph tells him, when you go to Pharaoh, tell him you're shepherds because the Egyptians hate shepherds. And what would that mean? He's talking to a king who hates the Egyptians. And and he would accept them because they are one of his own kin so to speak. They're from the shepherding clans of the Canaanite region. Interesting. And so this is it's circumstantial, but it starts to put it together. And if Joseph was raised to power under a Hyksos king. He would have looked at Joseph as being part of his Lineage or his heritage from the Canaanite region, and then of course, what happens when Joseph's raised to power? A generation passes, which is typically forty to fifty years passes, and a new pharaoh comes to the throne. Who is this pharaoh? I think it's none other than Amos the first, who ruled was a true Egyptian, ruled from the south and Thebes, came in, attacked the Hyksos, and drove them out of Upper Egypt. Or Lower Egypt is what would be in the north. Drove them out of the Memphis area, which is where the throne was. Uh, Memphis today is about 30 miles from the heart of Cairo, south. It's at the mouth of the Nile Delta. And uh, um, I believe he was the one who drove the Hyksos south. He's the one who either slapped the remnants of those people into irons or put them into servitude in order to, you know, you you keep your friends close but your enemies closer. Let's in, let's put them into slavery and into bondage, and this is what took place for the next hundred years.
1: Well, also too, uh, the, the, the date of fourteen hundred fifty BC doesn't that correspond with the volcano that erupts in? kind of uh, Santor, Santorini and uh, in the, during the, in reign the of, Mediterranean.
2: Some people put that during the reign of Hed which
1: is fifty uh, about twenty five years later something. Yeah, because like there's a, there, I, I remember seeing something in the '90s and it was like or maybe early 2000s. It was like James Cameron and some other guy. Yes, and they were uh, talking about the possibility that that, was, that, that, that that would account for that would account for the biblical plagues. That was a the, lot of them. Shimka Yakubovich did that with James Cameron. Oh, that's who that was. It was okay, a brilliant
0: expose. Yeah. Uh,
2: but they used also as one of the cornerstones something called the Epiur papyrus. And yeah. John and I both mentioned that it. Excuse me, in our book on the Exodus reality, I think it just
1: David. Started. David Roll. They use that in the patterns of evidence too. Yeah, yeah. and that dates back to roughly fifteen hundred BC. But
2: when you say roughly, uh, what's roughly in archaic terms?
1: It could be give or take three years, years.
2: Uh, forty years ago. You know, uh, thirty thirty four hundred and sixty years ago. Uh, they don't know the exact date because it's not dated. Um, But they do mention pharaohs in there. They mention names of pharaohs in there. But this is also something that is believed to have been reused. It was written later, but but originally under a different pharaoh.
1: (coughs) The uh, The way that I believe that David Roll says is that that actually is the middle kingdom, is the disintegration of the middle kingdom, and yeah. then you have that kind of this period of chaos, and then the New Kingdom establishes itself in my
2: Egypt. The 18th Dynasty, and pardon me for my call, uh, a cold here, and I try to keep it my mute button. Um, but the uh, the New Kingdom is where you have the 18th Dynasty, and this is where I believe the Exodus took place, was in the New Kingdom. And right. uh, um, the Epure Papyrus talks about, you can almost identify the ten plagues, biblical plagues in Egypt, by the Epure Papyrus. That's why some people... Scholars out there who are minimalists have declared it a, oh, it's a forgery, it's a fake, because it's too close to the biblical account. Well, what if,
1: shut up, what if the biblical account is correct? There's- Isn't it sitting in like Berlin somewhere or something? See him in Berlin, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's all very interesting stuff, just like the kind of the detective work that you can do on that. Well, Scotty, we're just about out of time, but I want to ask you real quick for everybody. Uh, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, where can they hear you? And if anybody's wanting to get last minute tickets for the symposium, where can they get those? All right. Well,
2: you can find me simply at my website and you can get almost anywhere where I get a bunch of websites with all the stuff we do. But if you go to Scott, dot com, that's my website. And Scott is with two T's. Alan is a L a N. I want to thank my parents for naming me two names that can be spelled a multitude of ways. So Scott Allen, A-L-A-N Roberts, at our .com. And you can see all the links there. You can go to certainly certainlyintrepidmag.com, intrepidradio.com. You can go to paradigmsymposium.com. You'd think we'd have these by now housed all under one unit. We don't. Uh, we're just that way. And um, so go to paradigmsymposium.com, and you can see if you want to get last-minute tickets, and by the way, if you go, oh, airfare right now is going to be. expensive. you know what? The closer you get to a flight date, that's a mis- That's a, that's a misconception. The closer you get, the cheaper those tickets become. Uh, yeah. I, uh, you know, I just got airline fare for all of our speakers in the last week, and fares that were three hundred and fifty dollars a month ago were. I got some of them for you know eighty eight dollars. You're like, wow, that's cool. Just go to yeah, Orbits or any of those if you want to fly in. Uh, you can look on the website. You'll see the hotel we're staying at, and there's hotels all around the area. Um, you'll see where we're holding the event. You can even get tickets there. You can get day passes, which are now available. If you're local to the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, or the surrounding region, Wisconsin, outstate Minnesota, and so on, we've got people driving in from Iowa, people driving in from the Dakotas, driving, you know, the Dakotas are four hours from here. Uh, Wisconsin is an hour from the heart of Minneapolis. And so you can uh, – we've got people coming from all over the the three- and five-state region here. And uh, so uh, if you want to get tickets, you can still get tickets. They're available. And uh, we've still got a few seats left open. Uh, I think uh, we could probably – if we wanted to, we could squeeze another 50 people into this facility. and oh, nice. uh, it's a, Oh, which I found yesterday. I thought we were more limited than we are. And What's your
1: capacity in, over there?
2: Capacity is about – they said they could squeeze in 310 people. And uh, um, now we haven't sold 200 tickets, but we've got about about 200, 150 to 200 people that have that have bought tickets and are coming. We thought we had a 200 seat capacity in there. And so now so it happens. We weren't adding in. This is inside a Masonic Hall. And inside the hall are two tiers of like church pews all along the walls on the sides. He said, you could you can sit almost 75 people in those pews alone. And we hadn't included that. And then we can set up extra chairs and things like that. So there's room if we need it. And uh, so uh, um, there you go. Paradigm Symposium. If you want to get tickets, you still can. com. If you get lost, you can just call me. My phone number is on everything. And it rings right to this little cell phone sitting right here on my desk.
1: Excellent. Excellent. And plus, we will be there as well. And we're looking, we're really looking forward to it. That's going to be the highlight as we conspire normal at your Paradise symposium.
2: And I got to tell you, you never know what to expect. There are years where we pre-sold 150 tickets and we had 400 and people at gate. Um, yeah. So it, it all depends if we have a nice hundred people there, you know, who knows? Uh, we have people have tickets. We sell and people don't come to the events. We go, Oh, we sold more tickets than that, but they didn't show up. Um, yeah. For various reasons. So it's going to be, it's either going to be nice and intimate or it's going to be packed. But if you want to come, go see who's speaking, get your tickets now.
1: Absolutely. Well, Scotty, stay on the line for us. I'm going to just close this, this part out. You got and it. actually, this is the last part of the show, guys. Uh, join us next week. Uh, we are going to have, and this will be right before we head on up to Minneapolis. We're going to have Dr. Timothy Furnish on, and he is an expert on the Islamic religion. Someone that I've heard on a couple of different podcasts that uh, and so I want to bring him in to just kind of talk the basics about Islam and kind of help us understand things a little bit better and how he sees uh, current events that are going on with it now, so guys, I want to thank everybody for listening, and we 'll be back next week on Conspiracy normal <laughs>